Hi, Hamish here. This episode was recorded before Carrie Fisher's untimely passing, and would like to dedicate this episode to her memory. Carrie will be remembered for her wit, her wisdom, and her honesty. To some, she may have just been an actor, yet to millions of people out there, she is royalty. Welcome, this is Saul Guerra. Have you come to listen to me? Let me warn you, spoilers and major plot points are discussed in this episode. Make sure you see the movie before listening. What's that? You say you've already seen the film. Lies. Boggle it. Boggle it can feel your thoughts. Boggle it will know the truth. Enjoy the show. Are you okay, boss? Yes, it's just my asthma. A very dry day, you know. Yeah. Welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me is our resident Star Wars expert, Paul. Paul, welcome back. Hey, Scott. Great to be back. Welcome back, Stardust. And also joining us from the great city of Melbourne is Ben Mendelsohn's neighbor, Hamish. Hamish, welcome back. Don't get cocky, kid. (laughs) All right. Well, we've seen Star Wars prequels about... Anakin Skywalker's troubled childhood, his awkward social life, his failed marriage, and now we get the prequel about the blueprints to his vacation house. That's right, this week we watched Rogue One, a Star Wars story. And this is the second Star Wars movie produced by Disney, and the first of a series of Star Wars anthology films, which will, I guess, kind of fill out some of the timeline of the Star Wars universe without being proper episodes of the Star Wars saga that we know and love. It was directed by Gareth Edwards, produced by Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy, uh, along with others. Uh, The screenplay was written by Chris Weitz and Tony Gilroy. It was based on a story by John Knoll and Gary Whitta. And uh, the film's score is composed by Michael Giacchino. And this is the first live-action film in the Star Wars canon that was not scored by John Williams. So... Just like last year, the three of us got together to discuss The uh, the Force Awakens. I figured, why don't we start uh, with the same way we did last time and, and talk about our movie-going experiences. So how did you guys see this movie? I saw it at a place that shows movies called the cinema. Right. Uh, oh, you, Paul. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, unlike last year, my story isn't like that, that too, let's say, exciting and thrilling. Like, you know, I was like the last minute. I basically got a ticket online thinking like, oh, I should probably see it if i get time to see it it was on a thursday here because it came out maybe a day before you guys got it yep so what you guys got on the 16th i went on the 15th thursday yeah so we got it on the on the 16th technically night of the 15th yeah so we had like maybe like a uh, maybe 24 hours before you guys so I, i saw it uh on the day it came out like not like not midnight where I was waiting in line. I'm not a sucker like that. <laughs> <laughs> I basically went online, bought a ticket. I bought two tickets online, which was like, oh, cool. If I find someone to come with me, they can come with me. I was on a Thursday, but I knew I was working that day. But I was like, I'll just say I'm busy with something because it's a Christmas season. So, you know, kind of, I was going to fabricate a story to watch this movie. <laughs> 
that's that's just me. But strange enough, the, you know, things came together, and I actually got the day off there because one of my coworkers just said, "Oh, can we swap days? I got to do something on this day." I was like, "All right, cool." I was like, "Cool, free day." Uh, and then my cousin, who he was you know free that day, texted me going, "Hey, what are you doing on Thursday?" I was like. Uh, seeing, like, like not much. And she was like, hey, do you want to see, like, Star Wars? And I was like, well, it's funny you would say that. I have a spare ticket. Because, like, it's one of those habits you get into where it's like, I'll buy two tickets, you know. But, yeah, I got a ticket for, like, maybe the midday showing of it. Me and my cousin went and saw it. And, yeah, it, it was not as as eventful as the first time I saw the other Star Wars um, Episode Seven. You know, where I had to get in there last couple of minutes. No, it was like, it's it was a Christmas rush, but if you go midday, you're okay, because... Not that many people are there, and you can casually get into a film, and there's not a big crowd. But uh, yeah, I saw it. Uh, I saw it in a midday showing. Nice. How about you, Paul? I ordered my tickets on Fandango, all 24 of them, <laughs> uh, as soon as they went on sale at midnight. So me and 23 friends went at 7 p.m. Thursday, the 15th, at our local theater. Then the following Monday, my wife and I were down near Baltimore. And the hotel we were staying at was less than a half mile from an IMAX theater. So we went to see it again in 3D IMAX. Oh, nice. And that was 10 a.m. on Monday morning. There was probably 80 or 100 people there. Wow. But uh, opening night wasn't as crowded as Force Awakens. I got there 50 minutes early, and they must have planned better than last year because we could go right in and get our seats. There was no line. And when we went in to select our seats, there were like six or eight people in there. And uh, by the time it started, you know, there was maybe 150 or 200. I don't know. I don't know what the seating capacity is, but the main middle section was filled. So uh, I've seen it twice so far and plan on seeing it once or twice more while it's still in the theaters. Nice. How many times have you seen it, Hamish? I've seen it twice. So that means I've seen it twice. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing special about seeing it twice, but no, I saw it uh, once with my cousin and a second time with my um, uh, best mate. Uh, and it's funny because uh, I saw the movie with him. It's funny because it's different because my cousin's into Star Wars and knows, you know, let's say lingo. Uh, but my, uh, but my best mate, he's not much of a Star Wars nerd, so he's like, I thought this was like number eight. It's like, no, 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 no. This is this is just the next one. Like this is like a prequel, but it's another Star Wars. But it's like the next Star Wars, but it's a kind of prequel side thing and then next year we'll have the other one he's like ah because i was wondering who the girl was like yeah i thought she was like yeah where was ray like it's like man it's like what like what and he was the one who wanted to go see this movie too it's like (laughs) what what kind of research did you do before this because yeah it's funny just because he brought up the question like so where was ray in this it's like what it was it was interesting because again he's just not uh into that kind of not not as much he's not into that kind of stuff yet if you talked about Fast and Furious, he knows all of that. He knows the, the trilogy, the quadrilogy, whatever. The, like, I have no idea what's happened to Fast and Furious. It's really turning into kind of a new Star Wars, i got to say that. Yeah. Those, prepo- those preposterous stories and action-adventure. He's, like, in that kind of genre, <laughs> I, I, I'd say. Now, I owe Paul an apology now, because before we recorded, Paul was like, yeah, some people have said that this movie should have had an opening crawl, so the people that were wondering about where Ray was... You know, they'll have an explanation. I'm like, you know, no one saw this movie thinking, oh, where's Ray? And so, yeah. Okay. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> Are you based it off my friend? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he, he wasn't sitting there watching the trailers like us. He wasn't going like, yeah, this and this. He's, he's, he was just a guy who had, you know, didn't pay attention. He's a guy who didn't pay attention. He's just a normal schlub. 
My dad recently asked me why Padme isn't a spirit like Obi-Wan and Anakin and Yoda. <laughs> why they didn't burn her body. <laughs> oh my goodness. You should have said, well, they couldn't afford Natalie Portman. That That's why. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so basically in my situation, I was trying to go with a friend of mine. Uh, it got so cold here in Massachusetts that his car got frozen shut. And uh, we, we went on YouTube and tried to find all kinds of ways he could get his car uh, open. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of remedies on YouTube, by the way, for that kind of thing. But he could not get it done. And then uh, just a couple more cancellations later. So finally, uh, just maybe a couple hours ago, I went to the theater and saw it. So yeah, just one showing for me. And even though it was kind of a, an afternoon showing on its second weekend, uh, it was still pretty packed. Well, everyone loves the Star Wars. I mean, this is a new holiday for us now. I know, it's funny. It's like, it's like there's Christmas, which you can be excited for, but then there's a new Star Wars. It's become an annual tradition, and yeah, that's great. Who would have thought, you know, that we would have a, a new Star Wars movie every year, you know, around the same time every year. It's great. It's well, my childhood just... dreams come true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get right into this. We have so much to cover here, and uh, I want to get your thoughts on a lot of this stuff. So uh, we open with a prologue. Uh, we have the, the ringed planet of Lamu, and we see uh, Orson Krennic's shuttle landing on this, uh, it looks like a lot of volcanic soil. We see the Green Mountains, and we see the Urso homestead. And this is our, our scene where we see the young Jin Urso. I believe they said this is 13 years before the you know events of the movie. And so we see a lot of... Uh, uh, back and forth between Galen Urso and director Orson Krennic. We see that there's a history here, and we get uh, a little bit of uh, Jin talking with her father, and we see the, her mother, Lyra, get killed and Galen apprehended, and Jin hiding in this underground bunker and eventually being rescued by Saw Gerrera. So uh, what are your thoughts on this opening prologue? It's interesting for the fact, like, yeah, it, it's quickly... Buck's convention of what we expect Star Wars to be. It does have, was it a long time ago, in a galaxy far away. Yes. Uh, so we already know it's set in that area, but there's no you know, opening crawl. And the thing about it is, like, I I think these spin-offs are allowed to do whatever they want to do. Like, if they're not part of the saga, they're not part of the main saga, it's like a side thing. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, doing those opening crawl for that particular thing, it's like, for me, it doesn't make sense. It's like... You know, if you read uh, like a book series, but then there's like other side stories with other characters, they don't they don't act the same way. And I think these side stories like that are allowed to be whatever they need to be. I mean, main saga stuff can be very familiar, but this stuff can be very different. But no, I like the uh, the quick movement into this new story. It kind of is set up to explain who these characters are in a certain way, just for emotional depth and a certain familiarity with a farm and moisture evaporators. Because I had yep. that very similar feeling to, you know, Luke and his uncle and aunt. And, you know, again, you have the uh, moisture evaporators and he's on some sort of volcanic, ashy landscape. So it's like, oh, that's what these machines are for, to create, you know, plants and things like this. Also, I like the fact that they bought, they put front and center bantha milk. Yes, I was going to mention that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got the blue milk, of course. Yeah, like it wasn't a subtle like, oh, here it is. It's just like... Front and center, here it is. A big yes. old jug of bantha milk. Because apparently that's what everyone drinks. That's it. There's, no one's having, like, I don't know, a crystal Pepsi. I don't believe they have it there. Or, you know, they, they sent that stuff into space and it still hasn't arrived. But, um, I like crystal Pepsi. I, yeah, kyber crystal Pepsi. 
I don't know if that's safe to drink, <laughs> seeing as you look at the lightsabers and the Death Star. But um, no, I, I like this um, uh, setup that they had. This, I guess, a new flavor of Star Wars, still set in the universe, but you know, giving us idea that there there are other people outside of was it the one true Jedi and the you know history of the Jedi's and all that stuff. There's other people, you know, it's like other lives. Yeah, which which I liked for the fact that you know it's. They had to do a little bit more world building, and that's what you're allowed to do with these films. Is that you know you do expanded world building. But no, I, I thought it was interesting, and I think as soon as Ben Mendelsohn started talking, I was like, "Wait, wait, wait! Is he Australian? <laughs> Did you notice that, guys?" Uh, I I thought he hid his accent pretty well. Wait. Yeah, I thought he sounded fine. Uh, Australian. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, storm a stormtrooper later in the movie sounded Australian. <laughs> They're outsourcing to the planet Australia. <laughs> I'm assuming there's something out there like Ozland or something like that. But as soon as um yeah Ben Mendelsohn started talking, I was like, wait, he's not like he's not doing the overly proper English voice. He's not doing an American voice. He's doing like a Ben Mendelsohn I'm Australian voice. Yeah, because down here, if you've seen much of his work, it's like you're very familiar with how he speaks. And I've seen him in other works where he's done an American voice. And yeah, this wasn't an American voice. It was like a, a very Stock standard Australian voice without it going into the realms of being very ocker. Right, like, yeah. mate, what are you doing on this planet? Oh, you and your wife have been a little bit tricky. You know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. <laughs> he, he wasn't trying to be a stereotypical Australian in space. But no, I, I thought that was interesting because, like, there's not one planet where, like, back in the early days, it was like, you know, English characters and American characters. It seems for this spin off, expanding on the idea that there are many multilingual or different ethnicities out there in space. Yeah. Now, Paul, you read the uh, the book that is kind of a prequel to this prequel, that book Catalyst. Now, does that give us any more insight into this uh, opening meeting between the two? Yeah, reading that book helped me a lot to set up the story. It basically starts, like, the first or second chapter is Jin being born. And it just goes into the background of how Galen and Krennic know each other, how Krennic over several years slowly breaks down Galen's inability, or not inability, but um, he's basically a conscientious objector. He does not want to get involved in the war at the time the Clone War is raging on, and they want to use his scientific prowess to uh, power their weapons. And he's against that. He's just doing energy research. And so Krennic hires him, telling him that the research he's doing with kyber crystals is going to be used in power plants that power cities or even whole planets. But then he's taking that research to other labs and having scientists replicate that and create weapons with it. And when Galen finds out the truth, they contact a friend who knows Sal Guerrera, and he helps them go into hiding and flee Krennic and the Empire. Okay, so that's their connection to Saw, who we kind of see a little bit on, like, a video screen at the homestead. Hmm. They they do stay in close right. contact. He's the only one that knows their location uh, in the last chapter when they go into hiding. I see. But it's noted that Saw Guerrero comes from the TV show. His first appearance came from the TV show The Clone Wars. Yeah. Uh, so this is, like, the first bit of actual acceptance that there's actually other source material out there for Star Wars, which is interesting. Because, you know, the Clone Wars TV show is an interesting show. Uh, it really kept the whole idea of Star Wars alive, even though they knew that there was a certain point that they couldn't go anywhere beyond, like, you know, like maybe the beginning of Episode 3. Mm-hmm. But I uh, know, yeah, Sol was introduced into the, into the series, and now he's actually a real 
living character in the in the actual movie franchise series. So it's interesting to see that kind of crossover. But as we move on, there are a few more. Oh yeah, <laughs> many mm. parallels. Oh, a nice mm. blending of the properties, as we'll get into. Mm. It's uh, starting with that blue milk, of course. Mm. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Who doesn't want blue milk? And so, uh, oh, and uh, also, we, we kind of talked about it, uh, Paul, you and I, in our one of our trailer episodes, but we see that little Jin has a, a stuffed little uh, Stormtrooper doll, and it just kind of reminded me of the parallel to Ray having the little X-Wing pilot doll in uh, Force Awakens, so it's just kind of a, an interesting parallel. A lot of people kind of thought, well, you know, maybe Jin is the mother of Ray, and of course, yeah, well, that that's not the case. I did really like this opening shot, though. A part of me was sitting there and hoping that after a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was going to be a crawl. Yeah. I know we heard there wasn't, but I was watching the premiere on YouTube and someone they interviewed said something about working on the crawl and then acted like he said something he wasn't supposed to. So I was like, wait, is there a crawl? Huh. So I kind of was hoping there was one. It was a little unfamiliar to just go boom, like right into the image of space and Krennic's shuttle. But I liked the opening sequence there on that volcanic planet, you know, where the Ursos were in hiding, and I was happy with that whole shot. That that very first shot, because, you know, of course, we have to start in space. That is one thing that does stay consistent. But that opening shot of the rings, did you know what that was as we uh, first saw that? No, I, I was a little confused by the look of it at first, and then I saw that it was you know, the rings being cut off by the shadow of the planet. Yeah, that was great. All right, so when Jin gets rescued by Saw, we then immediately cut to our title, Rogue One. No Star Wars story, just Rogue One. And we get our opening music. What did you think about the music in this movie, guys? Well, I'd first like to say that I am not a big fan of the text or the font or something they used for the title (laughs) Rogue One. (laughs) And I'm not the only one who feels this way. I've listened to other people on YouTube, and they've said the same thing. They said it looks like something that was created in uh, iMovie or something. (laughs) But it just looked very un-Star Wars-like to me. But uh, as far as the music, I haven't listened to the soundtrack by itself, and I'd have to do that to really form a full opinion of it. We were talking earlier about this, Scott. I was very excited that Michael Giacchino was going to be involved because he's done a lot of stuff I'm a fan of. Uh, I recently found out that he was brought onto the project late. He only had four weeks to work on it. That's crazy. Um, And that had to do with the scheduling of the reshoots and the original composer couldn't come back to work on it after them, I guess. He was involved with something else. So for that reason very likely that the soundtrack suffered because of it. There were a couple times that I didn't care for the music so much. The one time I remember being happy with the music was at the end when uh, Cassian and Jin are walking out of the tower toward the shore. Yeah, I think it's cello music or something, light emotional music playing at that time. I was happy with that scene. Overall, it was passable, serviceable, I guess. I didn't have strong emotions one way or the other about it, but I have heard people uh, have negative reactions to the music. You said that you, you thought the opening, um, just that logo at the beginning of it was uh, the was it title card, whatever you want to call it, um, was very un-Star Wars. If you do remember, the, the prequels do look very un-Star Wars. I think these first two, 
Strange enough, I was showing my friend the other day, uh, if you've ever gone online and heard Oral Noughts, uh, no. YouTube channel Oral Noughts, they basically redub things, and they do their version. Like, they recut it, redub it, uh, old Star Wars, basically the prequels, to make them actually more watchable, more or less turning it into a, a crazy adventure. If you ever get time, check it out. But I was showing my friend just the Oral Noughts videos, and they're like, "This is this supposed to be the prequels? Because they hadn't seen the prequels, right? They've seen the other stuff, but they haven't seen the prequels. And I, asked, <laughs> and I thought, well, you live in a, a lucky life where you get, haven't seen these movies. <laughs> but um, but she mentioned that they don't look like Star Wars. And I was like, what do you mean? It's like, well, it doesn't look like the Star Wars I think of when I look at it. So that's the thing, like, even though some people will look at this movie and might not feel like it's a Star Wars movie, you got to remember that the, those prequels, which are canon, and which, is our part of, which are all part of the main saga... Yeah, you know, they might seem different to other people. And remember, because it was a different time, you know, from the, was it 1999, the episode one came out, and then like in yep. 2002, the second one came out. It had a very different feeling. So I, I guess, you know, people had different ideas at the time, even George Lucas, you know. Well, it's not the, like the movie itself felt very Star Wars to me, which mm. I didn't feel about The Force Awakens, even mm. though it had stormtroopers and TIE fighters and stuff like that. Of course, they all had upgrades, mm. but um, this one felt more Star Wars because, you know, it was just closer to the time period we're used to seeing, but it definitely felt like it went with the original trilogy more. I'm just talking about that text they used for the title. That just kind of was off-putting to me. I was like, that doesn't look like it belongs on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was black and it was edged in yellow, so it did look a little different mm. there. Uh, yeah. Then, but of course, it's not part of a crawl, so we we usually don't mm. see the title of a Star Wars movie emblazoned across the screen like that. Sure, I guess I would have just liked to see it in the text or font they used for the title of the movie, like in the trailers when they have Rogue One, a Star Wars story, and it's like the the text is filled; it's not just the outline of the color, and it's. More of a, like a gold look instead of this was just like a bright yellow or something. Right, yeah. n- right now the listeners are going, are they really talking about this? <laughs> yes, yes we are. Yes. <laughs> and there's more more coming. There are very yeah. few things I can complain about with this movie, so I gotta <laughs> pick my moment. All right, and, mm. and going into complaints, all right, I, I have very few complaints as well. One thing I will say... When I'm hearing the music, I'm waiting for that signature, you know, Star Wars theme. I know there's some John Williams mixed in here, and I was waiting for it, and we kind of got uh, a knockoff version of the Star Wars theme. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, did they not get the rights? <laughs> I think they can use it. I think they have permission. It was so close, but yet not that. I think it's more just, just to establish that it's not the main saga. Because the main saga music has, yeah, I mean, at the, at the end of the movie, it had the the actual bombastic Star Wars music. Yeah. But I think for this one, it's more or less trying to give you hints that it's near there, but it's not that story. You know, it's like if you if you use the same music for the main saga and that spinoff, even though you go, oh, it's the same world, it doesn't really differentiate between those mm. two things. It's kind of like it needs to be its own flavor of thing. So I I, th- I think with the music, though, we're hinting at the main music. But again, you can't do Luke's theme. You can't do Leia's theme too much. Yeah. You can hint to certain notes of like, yeah, maybe love theme for Han Solo and Leia. But yeah, you, you don't want to go, oh, it's all the same music from the movie. You know, you want something which is similar but close. Yeah. 
And I think they did a decent job. I, you know, don't get me wrong, but that that was so striking when I'm, I'm ready to hear that familiar theme at the beginning of the movie, and I got something that was close, but no death stick. Uh, Thank you. Death sticks. All right, so I believe it's here we next end up at the trading outpost on the Ring of Kafrine or Kafrini. I'll go with that, yep. Uh, and this would be our introduction to Cassie and Andor. And uh, right away we see that uh, we're going to be moving to a, a whole bunch of different and new locations. And we get the actual name of these locations on the bottom left-hand corner of the screen. So what did you guys think about that? I was okay with that. It kind of reminded me of the beginning of the Star Trek reboot when they're all hopping around to Vulcan and different places and telling you where you are. kind of felt like you needed to do that with all these new locations. Mm. As far as the scene itself here, it was a little different because, as people have said, Star Wars always used to be very black and white. The Rebels are the good guys, the Imperials are the bad guys. And this movie right away showed us that that's not necessarily the case. Well, actually, a side side note is, remember, the Empire does have guys who are in white and black, so they they own both, (laughs) both sides of the board there right now. True. And they also have they also have grey as well, which is colour, and a sandy colour, which is part of their new season of outfits. Oh, we'll get to the short troopers <laughs> later. <laughs> Sorry, but, uh, I just yeah. want to bring up like black and white. Yeah, you know. it wasn't. It, yeah, it was. The movie was in colour, Paul. Uh, maybe it was just the television at your house when you grew up. Maybe it was too many scenes on the Death Star. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> but no, here we're introduced to Cassie, and then he's meeting a contact and. The contact has information about a planet killer that the Empire's working on. And, and then uh, a couple stormtroopers come by and he shoots them. And that alerts the other Imperials in the area. And his contact says, I can't escape. He had an injured arm. So he shot the guy in the back. Mm. And I, immediately I was like, what? Like, this is the good guy. You know, it was a little weird for me. As the movie progressed, I started to understand it better and the next time I watched it I was more on board with it but for that to happen within the first 10-15 minutes of the movie it was kind of like okay this is not what I'm used to yeah I was surprised by that too yeah um I like that for the fact that it again this movie more or less focuses on uh the rebels I mean we've already had like three movies showing how the empire comes together so it's interesting to see what actually takes to be part of you know a cause which I thought was interesting just to see that He's doing what he needs to do for a better cause, rather than going, oh, I should worry about this guy. Instead, it's like, no, I'm going to kill this guy and get the hell out of here. Which I thought, yeah, makes sense for the, if you're during wartime, which they are, and you're part of a very super secret resistance, and, you know, the Empire are completely against you. You're doing everything you can to survive, and more or less that's what's crafting in this whole uh, entire piece, is talking about the idea that the Rebels are good guys, but what's the cost of being a good guy? And like Cassian says, I think later on, you know, how they, they all did things, you know, that for the cause that they're, you know, not particularly proud of, I guess you could say, you know. And so this is just a, a very early example. Like Paul said, things are not black and white. At first I'm like, wait, did, did Cassian just kill that guy? Or did, did he get killed like off camera or something? Did I miss something? No, no, he just left him there. And, you know, so when more troopers come, they'll just find that guy. Mm. I mean, talk about scoundrels. <laughs> and also, we should mention, too, that one of the other points that we're given here 
of information is that Bodhi Rook, or, or I don't think they even identify him by name, but that an Imperial pilot has defected. This is where this information has come from. That's all we know at that point. And mm-hmm. uh, just one more note about the uh, the names of these locations uh, on the screen. You know, you thought of uh, the Star Trek uh, reboot. All I could think of is Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, yes, like, they would show you the name, and then at the bottom, just below the name, what it is. Uh, that's yeah. something that Guardians of the Galaxy did, and I was like, oh, there you go. There's another Disney movie. Yeah, sorry, I was, I was about to say it as well. It's just it had the. Um, it seems like. Guardians of the Galaxy, even though that was the, you know, a separate thing, Star Wars, I feel like it's informed a couple of their choices, mm-hmm. especially like the design of certain planets uh, and the certain uh, ways they show things and put things together. Like, yeah, putting the name of the planet does help people understand what the planet's called. But also, yeah, we saw it in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, especially for the next scene with, was it Jyn Erso in prison? Yes. So, again, another space prison, but it's a very unique looking space prison like the one from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So I feel like Guardians of the Galaxy, even though, you know, again, not related to Star Wars, was there as a good tester and a taster to go and go, all right, people kind of like this and this worked. Why don't we do a little bit of that? Because even in Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy, they went from a, was it space to a planet to another planet. Yeah, definitely. And this is the movie to do it in. You know, these anthology films that can kind of, you know, fine tune a lot of these details. And that that's mm. great. And so, yeah, so we go from here to where Jin is uh, imprisoned and she's sent to a labor camp on Wobani, which I guess is, uh, is that a yogurt mining facility? <laughs> oh, sorry, Chobani. I apologize. All right. No, so uh, this is where, where Jin is rescued. We've seen this scene in the trailer. They, they, uh, they actually stopped this convoy, which has a lot of prisoners. And I still don't know what that guy said to, to Jin, Paul. I think the guy says, do you want to get out of here? Yeah, that's what he says. Okay, <laughs> we had a we had a debate about that in the the last trailer episode, I think, where we couldn't really quite make out what the guy was saying. But yeah, we get the gist of it. Quickly on the note of the trailer, the movie and the trailer, two separate things, more or less. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, <laughs> if if you've noticed a lot, I think when you guys, well, when we did the trailer talk, yeah, a lot of stuff that was in the trailer does not really appear in the film itself. Which some people are like going, oh man, there's so much stuff in the cutting room floor. I mean. Okay, we can understand that. Maybe they got rid of some stuff for pacing, maybe just for logistics, uh, maybe because the story was changed, because there was two versions of the story that uh, Gareth Edwards worked on, and when he was allowed to do his version of it, which is the final thing we saw, I can understand there was a couple of changes. I think there was maybe a third act issue where they had to kind of readjust a lot of things. But yeah, I it's, maybe people are going, oh, stuff in the trailers weren't in the movie. But then you look at it, it's like a lot of that stuff was either put in there as a complete, like, throw off like the scenes was it Darth Vader standing in front of the uh, computer screen was it a big monitor screen it's the red coloring of uh, aiming device of the Death Star but again that was all on blue screen you could easily just get rid of that and just replace it and put whatever you like and then there were certain scenes like was it uh, Ben Mendelsohn's character Krennic standing there looking stoic and there's another scene of uh, Jyn Erso where she's in that hallway that lights up but again like I don't mind I mean people are thinking like oh those scenes should be should have been the movie and it's like not really. They just feel like this trailer, maybe they're actually learning that they're going, the trailer doesn't need to show everything from the movie. You can just put these kind of tasters and these kind of flavor, let's, let's say flavor enhancers into the movie, just yeah. trying to show what your movie is about and what certain things are in there. But you're able to very much keep the secrets. I think that's what they've learned from Force Awakens as well, where a lot of people were analyzing the trailer going, oh, it's this, and then this happens, and then this happens. But if you tweak and change a trailer enough, you can throw people off and keep all the secrets. Because, you know, no one's going to 
take the trailers that you've put up uh, online and then break it apart. I mean, a lot of people have broken apart these trailers and try to put it in the cohesive uh, logical time, like, you know, from what they can assume from the... and put it in the correct order. But, like, no, when you do things like that, I like that it kind of throws you off, but still gives you the flavor of the film, but won't ruin the film. Definitely. That was the one thing that walking out of the movie the first time I was slightly disappointed by is I'm remembering these images from the trailer and... Some of my favorite moments from the trailer were not in the movie. (laughs) And the next day I go back on YouTube and I find one of the many compilations someone has done of all the trailers and TV spots. And I'm watching it and I'm like, Krennic walking through the water on Scarif with his cape dragging through the water wasn't in the movie. Jin and Cassian running across the beach with the plans in hand and the ATACT shooting down on them wasn't in the movie. <laughs> Her walking down that platform at the top of the tower and the TIE fighter rising in front of her wasn't in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm completely happy with what happened in the movie. And there's several reasons for things being in the trailer and not in the movie. I do think that they shoot some things, especially for the original teaser, that are never intended for the movie. I heard an explanation about the scene where she's walking out that platform and the TIE fighter rises. They said that that was supposedly going to be right when like the X-Wings show up in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and an X-Wing was going to swoop down and take it out, but that was like right along with the scene where they also showed up and take out the... ATACT just in the nick of time and they thought there were too many of these convenient timing things happening so they took it out and as far as the scenes with them like running across the beach and the other scene I really liked of her and Cassian and K2SO running down that hallway where they shot it in a a subway station in England I believe and they were being chased by like a hundred troopers that wasn't in the movie And I guess there was an interview with Edwards where initially when they made this movie, or at least wrote the script for it, they were going to have a lot of the characters survive because they figured this is Disney, they're going to want a happy ending. And after reading it through or even watching it, if this was after the first draft was shot, they were like, no, they have to die, don't they? And so they're like, yeah, if we have permission to do that. So that's, you know... Jim and Cassian don't get to run across the beach with the plans. They do their thing in the tower, and that's about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was a little bummed after the first time watching, thinking back to those images and, and what I didn't get to see. But, like I said, I'm happy with the final product. Yeah. I think um, the differences between the trailer and the stuff that they cut is more or less it comes down to the, you know, what Gareth Edwards wanted or I guess what, you know, they thought would work best for the filming or for the film itself. I mean, for maybe pacing issues. But I think more or less when they saw those extra scenes, they just had a bad feeling about it and got rid of it. Yeah. And, you know... I I have a bad feeling about this. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) See, I was just trying to sneak that one in. (laughs) Uh, Even K2SO couldn't sneak that one in. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> there was a lot of nice little nods like that. Oh, so, you know, just going back to where we at the point we're discussing the movie, you know, where Jin is rescued. This was our introduction to K2SO. So, what do you, what do you guys think of K2SO's character in this? Best character in the movie. You think so? My new favorite droid. <laughs> but he was great. Almost every line out of his mouth was amusing, but appropriate 
one of the complaints I had with Force Awakens was sometimes it felt like the humor was a little forced or out of place, a little too slapsticky at times, not quite Jar Jar level. But this was like perfect Star Wars humor for me all the way across. Yeah. I really enjoyed K2SO. We knew Alan Tudyk as a, you know, uh, a great actor that also can very much be a comedic actor. Uh, as well as a good voice actor. And so, uh, you know, we didn't get that much in the trailers. You know, he told us in the trailers about, you know, the probability of failure and some cold, logical statements that you would expect from a droid. But uh, I was surprised. There was a lot of humor. It wasn't just that scene where he, you know, dropped the backpack. You know, this he cracked a lot of jokes, but not as jokes, but they were funny just in the way he delivered them or in the context that they were delivered. And, uh, yeah, I, I very much enjoyed... This droid. The only thing is, I wish he was a droid that we've seen before, a type of droid that we've seen before. Has uh, ha- Have these in- Imperial Enforcer droids ever showed up anywhere else in a Star Wars property? I don't think so. I mean, they're, they're most built for, I guess, this movie. Yeah. And I guess maybe they all just worked on that particular area, uh, or they were being phased out. Who knows? There's a lot of things that, you know, maybe a little bit inconsistencies, but I can understand that you know, the research science base or the, on Scarif, when they, you know, blew Scarif up, I can understand that maybe they did that and they didn't really warn anybody else to leave. So it's just like, we'll just blow up all these guys. So the shore troopers were distinctly for that one planet. Yeah. And so, you know, they got rid of a whole bunch of those things like that. But uh, no, I, I, I really liked uh, K2SO. I mean, I, I didn't expect him to be that kind of <laughs> hilarious character with his dry humor. But I like how they built the character, because in interviews when they're talking about how the whole thing works, it's basically Alan Tudyk wearing a motion capture suit on stilts, and he had these arm extenders, basically. Like the, if you ever saw those toys, maybe in the mid-90s, where it's like a hand, like a robot hand, a hand on a stalk, and then there's these little pulleys. Like, look, you put your fingers into it, and you pull these little puppety string things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They used to have them at carnivals or, like, you know... uh, $2 shops and things like that. But yeah, and the fingers move. He was wearing a motion capture suit, stilts, and those, like these arm extenders, so he actually could point and touch things. So he relatively could, you know, show what he's doing, what what he's picking up, what he's doing with his hands. But I also, like in other interviews, I mentioned how the fact that, because he was taller than most of the cast, I think this is Diego Luna on Conan mentioned that his balls are right in front of your face. <laughs> <laughs> Motion capture balls. Yeah, yeah, that they, they had to get all that in there. But um, yeah, he's he's towering over everybody in the in entire cast, and you know it's you know it's hard to get the suit on and off, and you know you have to do a lot of your normal things wearing the suit. Mm. But no, I I really enjoyed his character. I mean, there's a new character for the series, uh, even though it's supposed to be a, a collection of other like-minded droids like like him. Yeah. But no, I I, I didn't expect him to allow the character to have this kind of free will. Of personality, I gotta say. Like, you know, compared to C3PO, who's always about, you know, oh, this is bad. Oh, I don't like this. Everything's <laughs> stuffy. Oh, I've gotta go outside and get myself some creme fraiche. I don't know. Is that something he'd say? <laughs> I'd assume. Sure. But, <laughs> but because he's so stuffy, it's always, in- it was interesting to see this robot. And even though he has to be, it was funny, the choice was he's, Alan Tudyk had to do an English voice because he's, you know, part of the Empire. And everyone in the Empire is English, apparently. Or very rarely Australian, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I yeah, I didn't expect it to be that charming of a robot because I kept on thinking of the C three PO type, where it's like, oh, he's going to be annoying, isn't he? But no, I, I found it very interesting to see his character be introduced, and then sad to see him go. 
I know. Well, we'll get into that. But I, I love, you know, the great CGI, uh, you know, throughout this movie, uh, especially with uh, K2SO and his movements. But even like close up, I noticed his eye, kind of, you know, his eyes flicking back and forth as he's looking around. Just great. It looked so real. Now, uh, speaking of CGI, let's get into uh, another scene that we see here where uh, we see Tarkin talking to uh, director Krennic. Uh, Tarkin does not have a brief cameo like in Revenge of the Sith. Tarkin is very much a character in this movie. Uh, kind of Peter Cushing, kind of not. What did you guys think of Tarkin, Grand Moff Tarkin, showing up in this movie? I was surprised that he uh, was on the screen as long as he was. I figured he was going to play some part in this. Uh, he also was in the Catalyst book, and you got to see some of the power struggle that was developing between Krennic and Tarkin, because Krennic was in charge of weapons development, and his main focus was on creating the super laser for the Death Star, and Tarkin just, you know, planned on taking it over once it was ready. Mm -hmm. We saw that in the movie. But, yeah, I was really surprised that he was on screen as much. I mean, it was obvious to me that it was completely a CGI character. You know, it reminded me of the cutscene from a very good video game. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's funny because I mentioned to my wife on the ride home from Baltimore after seeing it the second time about that character, and she didn't realize it was CGI. She's seen A New Hope. She knows who Peter Cushing is. Saw him in A New Hope, saw him as Sherlock Holmes and other characters from old movies, but didn't realize that that's what they did. And so I guess, you know, they pulled it off pretty well. Hmm. But yeah, I, I was happy with it. I thought they did a good job. I've heard other people that are into graphics and, and doing things like that on computers saying how some of the movements of the face and the eyes were not quite there to make it look as realistic as it could be. Yeah. But for what they're trying to accomplish, I think they pulled it off as best they could. Yeah, Peter Cushing would be 103 if he was alive right now. When did he pass? He died in uh, 1994. Okay. At the age of 81. No, but it's, it's interesting to see them use this technology, because the last time we saw them do this face recreation, they've been doing it for a lot of the Marvel films, uh, especially if you saw Robert Downey Jr. as young Robert Downey Jr. in uh, Captain America Civil War. Which Scott did not. I didn't see it. <laughs> well, I'm telling everyone else you saw it, <laughs> but... um. Yeah, that and Tron. Yeah, yeah I was thinking of... Tron. Yeah, that, another Disney movie, definitely. Also, um, Michael Douglas and Ant-Man. They made him younger in that. No one's seen Ant-Man. Another one I, I own but haven't seen. But go ahead. No, I'm listening. Well, he's in there too. So they seem to be using this technology <laughs> of uh, basically bringing people back from the dead, let's say that, and making people younger. But also it's interesting to note for the fact that the body and the voice of uh, this version of Tarkin was done by uh, Guy Henry, who you might have seen in the Harry Potter films. If any of you guys watch Harry Potter, he's in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and Part 2. And also it was in the IT crowd playing a lawyer. Oh, okay. Well, I've seen the IT crowd. Well, yeah, he, he plays a lawyer in the IT crowd. But if you look at him, he has a very, um, a, a, a quite close resemblance to Tarkin or Peter Cushing. So, yeah, I think they made the right choice of finding an actor who matches that kind of look, but able to present himself as Tarkin, even though his face is completely CGI'd. It did for a little bit. I mean, even though I didn't expect him to be in this movie that much, uh, looking at his face, yeah, there was a little bit of uncanny valley about it. Yep. But at the same time, it's like, well, you guys are really going for the gusto. Why not? Go go ahead. 
you know, it's like, if this is the story you want to tell, and this is how you can tell it, okay. I mean, I had no problems with it. I mean, there were some people who thought it was maybe a little bit gross to use a dead actor, but more or less, they're trying to tell a story, and unfortunately, it's like there's no other way around it, and you can't introduce other characters, so you're very much, you're locked into a certain shape of having to follow a pre-established format. And if he's like, if he had, if he didn't have Tarkin, he put another character in, like Tarkin's assistant, Greg. It, it, it <laughs> wouldn't it wouldn't hold the same weight, I guess, as having Tarkin actually in the scene. But I do like the fact that they're explaining this certain, I don't know, inter office rivalry between Tarkin and uh, Krennic. Yeah, yeah, uh, Krennic ended up being a little more sniveling than I thought. You know, he he definitely had that strong, stoic look throughout the trailers. And, uh, yeah, throughout this movie, he's like, ah, oh, put in a good word to Palpatine for me, okay? You know, it's, like, really <laughs> funny. He really wanted word to get to the Emperor. Yeah, well, you know, he wanted the Christmas bonus. <laughs> life day bonus. <laughs> yeah, life day bonus. His family's depending on it. And now, apparently, now it's just Chevy Chase. Anyway, so, <laughs> I, I like the fact that, you know, it wasn't that easy where I was like, we've made the super weapon. Everyone's friends here. Let's use it. You know, it's just like, Tarkin was like, well, I hope this thing works. You know, I mean, the CEO and the head head boss is uh, looking down on you, man. You know. Yeah. You don't want the regional manager to come down and uh, say, this is not working out. <laughs> and, you know, the the look of Tarkin, I, I will say there's, there's one moment, because uh, obviously, you know, as a fan, I knew this was a CGI face. I did not expect Peter Cushing. Uh, so what, there's one scene where he kind of walks past Krennic and then he stops and turns around. And that that shot right there in particular looked really good. But like Paul was saying, around the eyes, there's always something about the human face you can tell. You know, we're, we're just mm. technologically, we're not there yet. There's so many subtleties in the face that uh, it's so hard to replicate uh, a human being in CGI. But, you know, for what they were doing... It, it, it looked great, and I understand story-wise why they did what they did. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it looked a little Polar Expressy at times. That's the problem they're trying to avoid. Everything looks like Tom Hanks. It's a little <laughs> weird. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, it's a little bit weird. Why? Just Tom Hanks. Just no, Tom nothing Hanks. against Tom Hanks. Just the, the fact that they tried to uh, to replicate the, the look of people completely with CGI and uh, that, as well as I, I think there was a there's a Christmas Jim Carol? Carrey Christmas Carol. Yeah, that that yeah. also ha- was a little weird. And same, uh, what was the other one? Beowulf also had a similar problem. So it yeah. just uh, just we're not there quite right. You know, humans still do the job. Fortunately, no uh, no K two S O's in our universe yet. So <laughs> anyway, so we get a scene on Yavin Four, uh, our first really you know familiar set here. Uh, amongst the uh, the temple ruins where the Rebel Alliance is headquartered. And this is the scene uh, that we've seen very much, uh, probably through, I, I would say, every trailer and teaser, where Jin is sitting there and being questioned by uh, the heads of the Rebel Alliance, including Mon Mothma. So what did you think of this scene? Anything that you didn't get from the trailer that you got here that you noticed? Well, several people have noticed that she didn't utter that famous line, this is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad they didn't they say that, that line. <laughs> it's just because, like, it, it's, a, it's a nice line for a trailer, but in the movie it doesn't seem to make sense. It just feels too, I don't know, like, mid-90s Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> you know, like being the Terminator. I've hit the Terminator too. It's like, we get yeah. it. 
you know, it's like, yeah, with the Rebels thing, it's like, we, we don't need it. So I'm glad that's not there, but now I'm guessing in years' time, it's going to be one of those disputed lines, you know, like, play it again, Sam, or stuff like that. It's, it's <laughs> right. going to be a way it's like, someone's like, oh, you know, someone will quote, I rebel. It's like, that wasn't in the movie. <laughs> Jin's a little too smart for that line, I think. Mm. But yeah, this scene was, you know, was pretty much what we expected. They did take a few things out that we had seen from the trailer. We had seen several parts of this conversation and ways it could go. It seems like they kind of softened Jin, made her a little more uh, empathetic to the cause, perhaps, and not as rebellious in that meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty much what I expected. Yeah, I, I do like the fact that they had to recast some characters, just like yeah, Mon Mothra was recast with... I remember she was in the she was in the cutout scene of Revenge of the Sith. Yes, it was Genevieve O'Reilly uh, coming back to play this character. So I thought that was a brilliant piece of casting. More or less, I'm guessing because she was still on the list of people who look like the people. <laughs> it was like she looks looks like a person. Yep, she still looks like a person. Good, thank God. Uh, and then you had was it the General Draven? Was it played by was it Alistair Petrie? Mm-hmm. And then you had to have a recast of General Dodana. Yeah, he was recast, which was interesting because like again, you have to keep that kind of similarity to uh, coming events. So it's interesting that to see these, you know, having to replace these characters, even though we saw a CG, General Tarkin, you cut over to this and we have actual real actors, you know, with similar faces. So it's a kind of mixing of old and new ideas, I guess. Because, yeah, I guess you could always CG or face manipulate characters to look like other characters. But I think it was good that they actually had real actors to show that, well, these people are, are real, real people. Yeah. Even though this movie should be a CG eye kind of movie, uh, they minimalized it in a way, you know, using, I guess, just brilliant casting. And practical effects, which are very much appreciated now. Mm. As far as uh, General Dodonna goes, it's kind of easier to look the way they should when their face is covered in a beard. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. I do like the fact that they did make most of the characters in this film have awful 70s haircuts. Yeah, I was going to bring that up too. <laughs> 70s hair, very much. And it's great. It, it added to that overall look that tied it to the original trilogy. It was another great choice. Yeah, 70s hair and mustaches. Remember <laughs> when people were allowed to have mustaches in movies? <laughs> what a time. So obviously this movie is a period piece, a 70s period piece. Yeah, it is strange that it, it kind of is, yeah. Mm. And another character from the prequels also shows up. It's uh, Jimmy Smits. For, who's playing Bail Organa, who we saw in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, and also uh, the preceding sequels of that film. Yeah. And it was great to see him come back here. I mean, you know, even though, yes, he's gotten a little bit older, but it still matches in time with where he's supposed to be and, you know, where his character's at at this point in his life. So mm. I thought that was great to bring him back into the fold and, again, honor the fact that, you know, these prequels existed. Even though some of us don't want to believe it did, bringing back Jimmy Smith was a pretty good smart move because he's just a handsome man he's a good actor yeah and definitely uh you know part of this story mm. he was a good part of the prequels let's let's use good parts of those prequels because there were good parts there you know there there were the the kyber crystals in the rough mm. but no it's it's really great to see that they're actually honoring those uh, movies and you know picking the best parts out of it yes definitely okay so we also cut to Jeddah, and here we see bodhi rook played by riz ahmed and he is a pilot that has defected to Saw Guerrera and his men. He's looking for Saw. 
Uh, in fact, we find out he was given something by Galen Urso to deliver to Saw. And, you know, as Paul talked about, you know, we talked about earlier, there is a history between these characters, so it would make sense. Uh, he would know that Saw is part of the uh, Rebels, not necessarily the Rebel Alliance, as we learn. And uh, Bodhi's probably questioning that decision right away as he's uh, delivered to the uh, Partisans, which are uh, Saw Gerrera's men. They're kind of extremists, and they're they're separate from the Rebel Alliance. They, they rebel against uh, even the Rebels to the point where the, the Alliance uh, find them uh, to be troublemakers. They cause a lot of headaches for them. And so they bring Bodhi to the Catacombs of Kadera, which are these, uh, you know, ancient ruins outside of Jeddah City. And of course we saw Jeddah City a lot in the trailer where it has the, uh, the Star Destroyer above it. We find out that, uh, yes, what we assumed was true. There are kyber crystals there that are being taken up into that Star Destroyer. They're basically looting the Jedi temples uh, for these valuable crystals. And so uh, Bodhi Rook ends up having this uh, holographic message from Galen Urso. And uh, yeah, he finally does get to meet Saw Gerrera, played by the great Forrest Whitaker. You mean Ghost Dog? <laughs> Whatever you want to call him. Ghost Dog. <laughs> so what do you guys think of Saw Gerrera? Well, I have to say that uh, it took me a little while after that opening sequence between the Ursos and Krennic when we next jumped to the trading outpost. And then I think we might have gone to Jeddah for a couple scenes, and then we went somewhere else, and then we came back to Jeddah. And the Jeddah scenes until Cassian and Jin arrived... I wasn't quite sure what I thought about him, with Bodhi Rook being taken into Seesaw, and the way Saw was portrayed, he obviously acted different than he did when he came to rescue Jin as a child. Yeah. You know, he had that wheezy voice, and uh, it's kind of hard to understand at times. Lies! Deception! <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I, I wasn't quite sure what I thought about that. His, uh, I forget what he called it, the beast the tentacled beast that could read minds. The Borgolit. I didn't really... <laughs> I didn't really see why that had to be in the movie. You know, I guess after a while of fighting that fight, you would start to become suspicious and paranoid even of things like someone showing up and saying, oh, I'm defecting from the Empire. I have an important message. But it seems like his character might have had a lot more to do in the original story, mm -hmm. and then they ended up cutting it down because it almost felt like me, like another Gwendolyn Christie issue where they got this great actor for this role and then barely used them. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker was used a little more than Captain Phasma was and obviously had more lines and stuff, but still was not in the movie nearly as much as I think we expected. Well, uh, a, a bit of a side to that one, even though you didn't see much of him in this, he's actually appearing. Forrest Real Whitaker is playing the same character, Saw Gerrera, in the new series of Rebels, which is the TV show. He'll be in it for, was it series three, series four, whatever two? Mm -hmm. But he'll be playing the same character, Saul Gerrera, pre-crazy Saul Gerrera, uh, <laughs> in that series. So if you, you know, didn't think you got enough of him in this movie... Uh, get to see the very normal version of himself in the TV show, which is again, I gotta say, props to the TV show actually, you know, maximizing the, 
you know, I guess, right to bring a character from a movie series into their series, because they even had Liam Neeson in a, one of the episodes of Clone Wars, playing everyone's favourite character. Qui-Gon! Brian, oh, yeah, I was about to say Brian Mills, but okay, sure, Qui-Gon. <laughs> but yeah, he came Rob back- Roy. <laughs> he came back to play Dark Man. He came back to <laughs> sorry. He came back to play um, the same uh, uh, Qui Gon uh, for the TV show, which is just great. I mean, that's the thing. It's like I think we're expanding on what Star's properties you have, uh, especially with the TV shows. I seeing as they've kind of readjusted that whole expanded universe. I think they're trying to maximize the TV shows by make it more relevant to uh, the saga and the main canon. So yeah, if you didn't get enough of Saw Gerrera, you'll see him in the TV show. But no, I, I thought he's this crazy Saw Gerrera, which was different from his first appearance in um, uh, Clone Wars. He did seem he was very unpredictable. And I know Mon Mothra labeled him as an extremist. And I, I did like that little subtle hint. I don't know why he needed the... I mean, maybe he's really old, he's really broken up, but his whole what, gas mask thing? What he was using? Yes. The air breath thing? Whatever. Um, I don't know what's in that. Maybe it's just helium. I don't know. Maybe he just loves that. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just you know, potpourri that he has that he likes to smell. I don't know. <laughs> well, that borgolet, I can't imagine it smells that great living with that thing. I don't even know how he got that thing. That that thing, I, I, very, I questioned its, its <laughs> tentacle nature when he was grabbing Bodhi Rook. And I know it's supposed to read minds, and I can do understand that, yeah, it, it didn't really make sense because we didn't really get much of a justification for why. It was, it's supposed to be a lie-detecting alien thing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> But it really messed up Bodhi Rook. So at the same time, it's like, what are you gaining from this? It doesn't talk. It's like, it just it looks creepy. I can't say the thing I want to say because I know this has to be PG. But, you know, it's just very creepy with the tentacles. But it does kind of match the whole craziness of what Saw Gerrera has become. Like, he looks like a guy who's seen a lot of war. He's got his whole outfit that's still on. I don't know if it's a life-preserving thing. But I do like that he has this little air breath thing. <laughs> That he uses yeah. for some air, potpourri, the smell of cheese, I don't know. And they did that kind of hint of uh, Darth Vader. Just for a brief second, you know, the deep breathing. But the Saw Ger- it's this version of Saw Gerrera is a guy who's broken and been very much messed up by this war between the Empire. Which I guess it still fits in this whole realm of expanding what the universe is like and what Star Wars is. I mean, you have the Rebels... And they, they're putting a lot of their life on the line, and they're spending a lot of their time fighting a near-insoppable force. So I can understand it has broken a lot of people, and has turned a lot of people into the worst version of themselves, in a yeah. way. And in a way, they're all kind of looking for a redemption for being part of the Rebels. So, you know, unlike the completely clean and working system of the Empire, you have the Rebels, who are a bunch of people hiding. What was that movie? Was it Blue Velvet, where Dennis Hopper's, like, <laughs> breathing from the mask constantly? Yes. It's, like, it's almost like they were kind of going for that vibe. Just kind of weird. Well, not not too far into that vibe. That gets it, You might question a lot of things if you really went down to that Dennis Hopper vibe. <laughs> I, I do, we can't talk about that, because we have to avoid that sort of stuff. But if you ever seen a movie, and you're trying to relate it to this, to Rogue One, please don't. No, I don't know much about that movie. Like, I don't know what he was breathing or anything, but it's just that imagery I'm aware of. Mm. But anyway. All right, so basically, the Rebel Alliance has Jyn Erso. They want to get to Galen Erso. So they figured that, you know, Jyn will be a good way uh, for them to track Galen. And there's a... Basically, I, I found this online. I don't think they mention it in the movie, but this is called Operation Fracture. Did any of you guys pick that up in the movie? 
No, I don't recall that. Yeah, I, I think that might have not been mentioned in the movie, but uh, supposedly this is called Operation Fracture. So basically, Rebel Alliance wants to kill Galen Erso because they feel as though if they get rid of him, they get rid of the superweapon that he's working on. So Cassian, Jin, and K2SO head for the moon of Jeddah. Jeddah is a moon, not a planet. Whoa, but before that, before going to Jeddah, when they're going to the hangar to get into the U-Wing, we see, top left, it's the ghost from the TV show Star Wars Rebels. Which is, again, their reference to the TV show being actually part of, well, canon now. In the spaceship, there's a long shot, and you'll be able to see uh, the spaceship ghost, or the ghost, up to you, whichever way you want to put it. Which is the spaceship the team from uh, Rebels actually use. Oh, nice. See, I did not know that. I have not watched Rebels yet. That's great. Yeah, there's a lot of quick little things, and actually, uh, the Star Wars website did actually post this stuff up, just showing you those segments. So if you go through, I think, their Twitter or their Facebook page, yeah, you'll be able to see the photo of the ghost, top left corner in the long shot, before they're walking up to the Ewing, of uh, their, was it, it's a VCX-100 light freighter. That's awesome. Yeah. So there you go, there's, there's more references that they're slipping in there. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Rebels is very much canon. The, there was some uh, insignia or imagery that was used at, uh, at a flag in Maz Kanata's castle. So, yeah, very much uh, a part of this overall story. Mm. So we finally get our main characters to Jeddah, the moon of Jeddah, uh, and they go to Jeddah City. And we basically what we saw in the trailer, it is a marketplace. Uh, like Paul said, there's a lot from the trailers in this city that are not here but uh, we do get the introduction of the characters Chirrut Imwe and Baze Malbus. And they're kind of just in the streets, you know, and uh, kind of doing little tricks for money, I guess. You know, like uh, Chirrut Imwe would uh, tell her things for money. Cassian's like, all right, come on, let's go, let's go. But uh, he notices that she has a crystal on her. And she looks at him and sees that he's blind. And how is that possible? How could he possibly know? And we learn that the, there's a lot to the character of Chirrut Imwe. Uh, we learn that uh, they were guardians of the Temple of the Wills, but uh, they were cast out into the streets when basically the Empire started raiding the Jedi Temple for its kyber crystals. And that's a reference. The Wills. Yes. Do you, are you guys familiar with the Wills? It's from the earliest draft of uh, Star Wars. Yeah, I have a quote here from George Lucas. Yeah. Uh, Wills is spelt W-H-I-L-L-S. Mm. Originally, when I saw this, I thought Temple of the Wills, I guess W-I-L-L, like willpower, but I no, that's not what it is. Uh, here's a quote. I'll read this directly. Should I read this as George Lucas? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, originally, uh, I was trying to have the story be told by somebody else, an immortal being known as a will. Uh, there was somebody watching this whole story and recording it, somebody probably wiser than the mortal players in the actual events. I eventually dropped this idea, and the concepts behind the wills turned into the Force, but the wills became part of this massive amount of notes, quotes, background information that I use for the scripts. The stories were actually taken from the Journal of the Wills. All right, George, shut up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Journal of the Wills comes from was it like, uh, the earliest script of Star Wars, because it's supposed to be, was it, the whole story is take, takes place from, was it Journey of the Wills, or the Book of the Wills, depending yeah. on where you want to put it. Yeah, because that's what I remember it from, it was from the earliest draft. It's just like, was it, this, was it the story of Luke Skywalker, or... Starkiller from the Journal of the Wills. Yeah, it's supposed to be a part of that whole, from the first uh, script, you know, when they're still piecing everything together. Yeah. From what, I, from what I remember of the whole thing. I think there's still stuff you can find online, even like references. I think there's a, a footnote, actually I have a note here. What is it? Du -du 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 -du. There's actually something from Journal of the Wills, if you want to want a line from something, 
if you want that, anybody? Yeah, it's go. A, it, it's a verse labeled 7 colon 477. A little bit of a poem from the Journal of the Wills. Uh, it says, first comes the day, then comes the night. After the darkness shines through the light. The difference, they say, is only made right by resolving of gray through defined Jedi sight. Journal, Journal of the Wills. There you go. In brightest day, in darkest night. <laughs> Pretty That's much, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, to the Green Lantern Corps. But no, yeah, I thought that was interesting that they were actually applying more older Star Wars history, I guess, or, you know, uh, creational history of Star Wars into the actual canon now. Yeah, and I think that's a that's great. You know, we saw a lot we saw in like Force Awakens just using the name Star Killer. Great nods to the original source material back when some may say that Lucas was at his creative peak. Yep. Yeah, I like that. You know, and you think of the wills. Well, what are the wills? Well, we don't know. Uh, you know, there are these you know great celestial beings that maybe are just kind of watching what's going on, but we're not quite sure. And that is such a better explanation of the Force than Metachlorians. You know. Hmm. I, I like the fact that they yeah, weren't focusing on that whole um, idea of what we expect Jedis to be or what the Jedi Order is, or even to follow the Jedi faith. And you have a character who believes in Jedi faith, not entirely sure if he actually is a Jedi, because they do mention, like, is he Jedi, and they're not sure. He's a guy who just believes in the Jedi faith like, quite strongly, it seems. And it seems that's mm-hmm. what they're drawing it back to, being something where it's like, you don't have to be special, you can be anybody and just kind of believe in this. And it works for him. Uh, what it, you know? Let's go right into this. What what did you guys think of Donnie Yen as Chirrut Imwe in this movie? I really enjoyed his character when he took out that squad of stormtroopers single handedly. That was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah. Although some people do say, "How does a stick take out stormtroopers wearing helmets and armor?" <laughs> but for those that say that, I could point to Return of the Jedi and Ewoks shooting arrows and throwing rocks at stormtroopers and being pretty successful. <laughs> so, but yeah, I thought uh, I thought that sequence was really cool when he was fighting, and throughout the whole movie, he was also a, a bright spot. I thought a, a very likable character. Yeah, I, I liked this character for the fact that it was a different take on the idea of someone having uh, exceptional abilities and the idea of a, a blind man. I mean, it's, it's a very actually part of a... Is it, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the thing right now. Dang it, I cannot remember it. Um, because there's an old... The Blind Swordsman, I can't remember the name of his the whole story, but, like, it's a classic tale. Zatoichi. Yeah, there we go. But, yeah, it, it's, it's that harking back to when Lucas made the first Star Wars and it's based off, you know, a, you know an existing idea... And he wanted the whole idea of everything to be very... It's Japanese in the feudal kind of era, but in future space sort of way. Mm-hmm. So it kind of harkens back to that idea and keeping that kind of his history of storytelling and his... I don't, I'm not say borrowing, but like kind of harking back to the whole... His love of that kind of work. I mean, even though he didn't direct this movie, it's kind of still follows in the same vein. I mean, even further, if they decide to make a character who was an older man taking care of a small child, you know... Wolf and Cub. If they did yep. something like that, I mean, yeah, you'd be like, oh, okay, cool. You you really bring more of this um, into the fold of Star Wars. But no, I, I thought his character was interesting just for the fact that the way they explain his movements and his heightened senses with, you know, stormtroopers moving a foot, about to pull a trigger, you know, breathing heavily, that kind of stuff. I, I thought that was interesting to see how they brought that quick cut succession of shots 
to explain his abilities. It wasn't just kind of going, oh, I know he's there, and just doing it. It's just like, no, he's hearing, he's in touch with certain uh, vibrations and movements in the air. But I also like the fact that he proved that Star Wars Stormtroopers can actually shoot something, even, <laughs> yes. even if it's just this one guy. Because <laughs> that guy was shooting on target as he was wrestling his uh, you know, co-worker, and he was shooting directly at him. All his shots hit, which were great, even though he was killing <laughs> one of his own men. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. And just casting an actor like Donnie Yen, he's very famous for the Ip Man movies, uh, you know, just uh, an amazing uh, performer when it comes to uh, martial arts. And then using a- another actor, like his uh, his friend here, Baze Malbus, played by Zhang Wen, you know, two uh, very uh, successful, popular actors overseas. And it just is kind of similar to Force Awakens using a lot of the actors from the Raid movies. You know, this uh, definitely... Uh, garners a, an international audience and you know disney's smart they know what they're doing but having an actor like donnie yen of course they have to give him his scene you know and this is what we get here where he gets to show off his talents and, and take out this huge uh, amount of <laughs> stormtroopers mm. but he does use a light bow later on we see mm. very similar to the uh, the bow caster that mm. uh, chewbacca uses but uh, a, a little different I just wanted to say I agree with you, Hamish. I really liked how at the beginning of that fight scene, they did those quick shots of uh, the stormtrooper stepping in the sand and, you know, the finger tightening on the trigger and showing how he was using all his other senses to know where the enemies were. I thought that was really good editing and cinematography. I just quickly on the side, this, this fight scene takes place before another scene, was it? The... So I'm just trying to get us back on track to where we were in the story before. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're jumping around a little bit here, yeah. yeah. We're talking about the cool stuff. But no, like, when they're walking around Jeddah, there's, uh, uh, you can see certain things in the background, like the uh, Stormtrooper's tank, the yep. Chicken Walker. I can't remember the name of it. ATSD. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I keep saying Chicken Walker, but we all do. Um, <laughs> the Chicken Walker and the a probe droid I was uh, going about. So, yeah, they were yeah. very much entrenched in, they were very much occupying this whole area of Jeddah. And, uh, of course, uh, a, a little bit of a cameo as they're walking through uh, this marketplace. Uh, two cameos, actually. Of Dr. Evazan and Panda Baba. I don't like you. <laughs> My friend doesn't like you. They, they just go around the galaxy bumping into people, looking for fights. They, I thought they, that was pretty funny. They're a bunch funny. of drunks. They, they go to bars <laughs> most of the time. They hang out and, you know, just force people into fights. Now, how did these guys escape to be in the next movie? They just left. <laughs> I'm assuming they really just left. Must have been on their, their, they were on their way to the docking bay. Okay. I guess. I'll buy that, sure. Yeah. They have to be in Mos Eisley in a little less than a week. <laughs> yeah. They're just there uh, for like, you know, just to go to a bar, hang out, and they go, man, this place blows. Let's get out of here. It's like, I know a really cool bar on Mos Eisley. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm guessing that's, I'm guessing that's what... Ponder Baba says, I mean, I don't understand the word he's saying, but I'm assuming in his language, he's like, oh, yeah, boy, let's get, uh, I don't know what the equivalent of getting drunk in space is, let's get flippity giblets. <laughs> Blue milk pub crawl. <laughs> uh, big uh, fans of desert planets. Yeah. Go from Jeddah to Tatooine. Yeah, that's true. They, they do like the sandy places. It's like, man, this place has got too much sand. I hate this sand here. It's too coarse. It just really gets everywhere. Let's go to another place. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we saw the uh, X-wing pilots from the trailer either, did we? No, we. That's yeah. That's another good point. That, yeah, that would be good. in this marketplace. Yeah, but yeah, this was another scene that initially, when I saw the movie, 
um, when this battle breaks out between Saw's men and the Empire, um, there's that one part toward the end where Cassian sees someone up above getting ready to throw a grenade down. Yes. And he shoots the guy, and the guy drops the grenade, and it takes out, like, more of the rebel fighters. And again, I was like, what is Cassian doing? And then the second time I watched it, I realized that that guy was going to throw the grenade down at the Imperials that were, like, right next to Jin. Ah. So he was actually protecting Jin. Because at first I was like, whose side is Cassian on? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, because I, like I said, I just saw this the the one time I did not catch that. Yes, basically, in this scene, we have uh, the the tank troopers rolling through. We, we're not really sure why they were rolling through in the trailer, but here we see they were hauling these canisters containing kyber crystals, which, if you notice, they had uh, Arbesh, I believe it's called, Arbesh writing. There's a lot of Arbesh text in this scene, I, I I can't wait to actually get a copy of the Blu-ray and try to transcribe some of these words to see what they actually say. But uh, yeah, so this is where we kind of get that three-way fighting. We got, you know, Jin and Cassian with the Rebel Alliance. We have the uh, Imperial Troopers, but then we also have the Partisans showing up. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of cross-fighting going on. All right, so after this fighting, we see that... Cassian and Jin are taken to Saw, and finally, uh, Jin reunites with her old friend, kinda? We learn that uh, she was with Saw's partisan group uh, around the age of 16, I believe she said she was abandoned uh, by him. He feels as though he left her alone to protect her, because once people started realizing that she was the daughter of an Imperial science officer, she could be very valuable as a hostage. So he, he felt he was doing the right thing. She felt as though she was being abandoned by, you know, a, a father-like figure that, uh, you know, that took care of her from a young age. And, uh, but they don't really have a lot of time to resolve this because what happens next, we get that holographic image from Galen Urso. It's a message to basically anybody that would listen, but primarily Jin, if she's still alive. And uh, this is where we get the scene that Galen explains how he had been lying this whole time to the Empire, and he snuck in a vulnerability in the Death Star. A small weakness that will cause a chain reaction that will destroy the entire installation. Uh, so what did you guys think about this? It only took 39 years <laughs> to explain why this uh, massive base has this one flaw that was designed in it. No, this was a great addition to the movie. Don't think any fans are upset about this, but they're happy to have this, you know, put in there to make sense and answer that question. I was really happy with it. And this whole scene with her seeing her father for the first time in, I think she said 15 years, was uh, how long they had been separated and mm -hmm. how she was responding to that emotionally while you're getting this information as well. I thought it was a very good part of the movie. Yeah, I, th I thought it was interesting, um, especially for uh, Cassian and the uh, ragtag group of rebels, how the scene beforehand, they just escaped uh, stormtroopers after being cuffed and then getting captured by Saw's guys. So they're having a, pretty, a bit of a rough day. <laughs> especially, especially for Cassian, he got slapped in the face by his own droid. Uh, oh yes! <laughs> again, just harking back to that for, for some reason he has a personality of his own, and plus also uh, being the fact that you know, he's an uh, imperial droid, he's able to sneak through the facilities. 
uh, and the Stormtroopers assuming he's one of their own. Uh, yeah, and they're being dragged all the way just to Saw Gerrera, dealing with Saw's craziness, and, you know, Jin seeing that he's a kind of a broken man. But it's a very emotional day for her, because, again, she's gotten out of jail, then more fighting, and then arrested, then captured, and now she sees an old friend, and now she sees the video of, of her father, who she hasn't seen in years. So it's a very emotional day for her. I can understand why she breaks down, because it's like she has a very strong exterior, but seeing these relics of her past, I mean, it would get anybody. I mean, you know, she sort of saw uh, most of her life, and he raised her, practically, to be a tough person. Uh, and then be feeling betrayed by Saw, and being left alone, and then being left alone by her... Well, being left alone by her father previously, because she had to escape... It's very emotional for her, I gotta say. It feels like she's yeah. really dealing with a lot of things happening at the same time. Which is different, comparatively different to uh, uh, Cassian, who has a very strong exterior, and you can see that, you know, he's not gonna waste a shot. You know, if he can take a shot, he'll take it, at this point in the film. And you see her, and she, you know, when seeing her father kind of just, you know, falls apart. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's interesting to see that difference of personality between these two people. But for the fact that, you know, he's giving her all this, like, in this hologram, it's all this information, very important information for the rebels. And she's, I guess, trying to deal with the fact that, you know, her father, who's the only person who calls her Stardust, is really emotionally affecting her. Which explains her actions why, when everything starts falling apart, with the next scene, that she doesn't grab the disc and run off with it. Yes. Yeah. I like that just for the ex explanation of just saying that, you know, you know it, it may be convenient for the plot to keep her around, but at the same time, well, yeah, I mean, if you hadn't seen your relatives or anyone you knew for so 15 years or so, yeah, you'd be like, what? And you're trying to deal with all these emotions at the same time. So it's a lot of things happening in her life at this point. Just the, the fact that there is that vulnerability and is, it is explained in this movie. Paul and I talked about it in our uh, last uh, trailer episode. You know, that, that, that was kind of a rumor going around that, you know, Galen designed the Death Star and it's possible that he put in this flaw. And, you know, I was so hoping that this was going to be kind of mentioned in the movie. Not only is it mentioned, it's kind of the focal point of this mission. Like, this is why the plans have to be recovered because he put this vulnerability in this space station and this is what they're going to use to stop it and i just thought you know like uh, like we talked about that this was just a brilliant move this is so great and just you know writes some of the the wrongs from the uh, the original trilogy there isn't many there but there are some and this definitely uh, takes away one lingering point that uh, people have had over the years uh, Galen also put another vulnerability. It was basically in all of the communication equipment. If any of the stormtroopers have a Death Star Note 7, it'll explode randomly. <laughs> uh, but, that, but they will explode. Actually, I, I believe that the, they first tried them on those Death Troopers, and that's why they don't have them anymore. They're just too violent ah. and dangerous. I mean, they just explode at random, you know, their headsets. Yes. It just explode, and so they had to get rid of them. They weren't really good on flights. That's why you don't see them in the <laughs> expanded universe or the actual trilogy. <laughs> All right, so we cut back into the Death Star and we see, you know, more of that back and forth between Tarkin and Krennic where they decide that they're going to actually test this super weapon, but not at full capacity. Because, uh, you know, as we talked about in previous episodes, full capacity was used on Alderaan, so anytime we see it used here, it can't be at full power. So they, they do a test fire on Jetta City. Fortunately, Saw and his men... Cassian, Jin, Bodhi Rook, K2SO, they're all outside in those catacombs away from the city. So when that test fire actually hits, they do have a little bit of time to escape. 
But unfortunately, in all of the commotion and emotion, uh, Jin forgets to take her father's message, a hard copy of it. So basically, the message exists only in her mind. That's uh, unfortunate, but at least the message was delivered. Yeah, and it's interesting, was it the, this, the difference of perspective, which I liked, where from the Death Star looking down and then from the ground, from Saw's base, where you see this huge wave of just debris or yeah. uh what, what k2so says where it's, so, so you told me to call you if there's trouble on the horizon was that it yes yeah there's trouble on the horizon there is no horizon <laughs> <laughs> i mean it i mean that came after the yeah the emotional point for Jin. but yeah it's like the sassy robot got to say something but yeah it's the difference between because you see them going you know um scrabbling and trying to escape but i like that they find bodie rook next door in a cell across because again uh, this is where you have... Oh, is Donnie Yang's character? Cherit Imwe. He's he's chanting to himself. Which, again, I like that it, it built the idea of the Jedi religion being more than just one thing. And you can see he's chanting and you know, his friend's like, Why are you chanting? He's like, chanting again? Okay. You know, it's like <laughs> a way for him to keep in touch with this special ability. And I like his line of saying, it's like, My friend's angry because he knows the door can be open. Referencing the fact that, you know, just if, if, you're, if you're a Han Solo... I mean, you can't open it normally, but if you're Obi-Wan Kenobi, yeah, he's got all the abilities. He can do all this cool stuff. You know, yeah. a normal man and a, a, a man of faith. But yeah, I, I like the fact that they're, they're still presenting the idea of the Force being this religious connection to all things. Uh, and then finding Bodhi Rook next door, who looks like he's completely fallen apart because of tentacle adventures. Bogolet. <laughs> Bogolet sounds like something I'd say if I got kicked right in the um, groin. <laughs> oh, boggle it. Let's fall over. But yeah, I liked how quickly they all... Oh, also the reference, which was um, inside the base, was the holographic chess game. Oh, Dejeric is played. Yeah, yeah, but it wasn't the one with electricity. It was the one with actual pieces. This, yeah. this is how cheap these guys are. They can't, they can't afford the real thing. It's funny to see that there's actually a physical version of the game rather than just being an electrical version or holographic version of it. And also, yeah, I, I, that reminds me, too, in that scene, it's kind of like a, a little bit of a Mos Eisley's Cantina scene where we see the wide variety of, of, of uh, you know, species that are part of Saw's group here. Uh, one of them, if you notice, was a Twi'lek. This is Beezer Fortuna, Bib's cousin. Wow. Yeah, and he's actually designed on uh, early sketches of Bib Fortuna. That's another great thing about this movie is a lot of references to Macquarie's original uh, sketches for designs, you know, of the original trilogy. A lot of references to that. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's, uh, Bib's cousin. Yeah. And yeah, so the, the two perspectives of, um, the explosion from the Death Star and, uh, on the ground, uh, how were they quickly escaping and getting everything ready to escape? And there's this huge wall of debris and rubble and just this monstrous <laughs> life-ending explosion coming towards you. And then f- back on the spaceship, Krennic's going, oh, that's beautiful. Just that, he's, he's pretty happy with his thing. Like, it worked. Oh, yeah. You know, he's in front of all the the guys going, well, it, it worked. You know, there it is. There's explosion. And it's in, it's in high definition, too. It looks fantastic. I'm, I'm just <laughs> saying how good it is. But, um... Yeah, I like I like just the the different perspectives of guys testing a machine to see if it works, and then people escaping the blast zone, and then you actually yeah. had that good shot of the from uh, the ground up to Death Star of this huge plume of just rubble and uh, sand and just stuff going into the atmosphere. I like that shot. That was one of my favorite shots of the movie. Yeah, it was done very well, and yeah, another great blend of CGI and practical effects in this movie. Mm. You know, used appropriately. 
So basically, the, the test fire happens, uh, Tarkin is uh, very impressed, but cites certain security breaches from, uh, from Edu as a reason why he should take over from here. And so uh, Krennic decides, well, he's going to visit uh, Galen Urso on Edu to figure out what's going on, and uh, it just so happens that uh, Cassian is also sent to Edu uh, to take out Galen Urso. The characters don't know that quite yet. And so here we get this scene where, well, here's the uh, the main protagonists and the main antagonists showing up in the same location. And uh, so we, we end up at a, I guess this is what, a kyber crystal refinery and a research facility? And Edu is that rainy rocky planet that we saw in the trailers we weren't quite sure we were wondering you know i thought maybe this could be jetta at, n- at night but as paul pointed out it is really a little too rainy to be a, such an arid planet or, or moon and so this is a whole nother place that we visit yeah like you mentioned scott it does seem a little convenient throughout the movie that our heroes and krennic are going to the same location at the same time <laughs> Like, Krennic's going there to find out about the security breach, and the heroes are going there to find Galen, most of them thinking they're going to rescue him, and uh, Cassian going there to kill him. Yeah. You know, and then, of course, later, they all show up in Scarif together. Yeah, this this is one thing that, in the trailer, I think I was flip-flopping them going here and them going to Scarif. Mm-hmm. I kind of thought that they would go here last, to get Galen, and that's where Vader would show up and maybe put an end to many of their lives. As we saw, that didn't happen. This was an interesting situation here. I was, again, kind of taken aback by the fact that the Rebellion was ordering the death of Galen Erso. Again, that kind of gray, unfamiliar territory of the Rebellion doing something that we question the justice of. Mm -hmm. I liked this planet. I liked what happened here. I especially liked when Chira Imwe channeled that force and whipped out his bowcaster or whatever it is and shot down that TIE fighter. Yeah. Yeah, very skilled with that weapon. It was kind of comical to me that the X-Wings seemed to have no trouble maneuvering through the canyons with all that fog, even though our heroes driving around with a droid crashed into a a wall. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This was definitely um, a turning point in the movie. One thing I kind of critiqued the first time watching, and even the second time, I still think there needed to be one additional scene between this and then when they go back to Yavin, because we know what happens here. Jin's father dies, and when they get back on the ship, she mentions that those were Alliance bombs that killed him. But then she seems to do a complete 180, and when they're meeting together, discussing what to do, she's, like, completely on board to help the Rebellion to get these plans. I understand that she's doing this for her father, but it seems like there could have been a conversation in there or something to get her completely on board with helping the Rebellion and not being angry at them for killing her father. Yeah, that's true. I think maybe a conversation with Chirrut or something would have done something there to show her what side she needs to be on and how she can't just uh, be all about herself anymore. But uh, it was definitely a, a unique scene with Cassian going up there to kill Galen and the rest of them thinking they were there to save him and especially 
actually that part after he and Bodie left, and they were discussing, you know, Cheer asked, does he have the look of a killer? And then K2SO mentioned how his blaster was in the sniper configuration. Yeah. That was an interesting scene. Yep, but he just, he couldn't do it. You know, we, we see that, uh, you know, throughout all of this, he does have a heart, and there was uh, there was something going on on that platform that wasn't usual. So I think that kind of led lended credence to, to Jin's message. You know, Jin kind of explaining to everybody, no, 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 my father told me this is what we need to do. And yeah, it wasn't just Jin making up a story to save her father, for Krennic to strike Galen to the ground. You know, this, uh, this was not the usual meeting. Mm. One other thing, I'm not sure if this is, a slight problem with the story, or if it was Cassian just making an excuse. But when they were traveling through hyperspace, and he was conversing with the Alliance to tell them where they were headed and what they were doing, then he talks to Jin, and she tells him to relay the information to the Rebellion about what she had seen in the hologram. And he said, I can't send that message. We're in the heart of Imperial space or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then... They're on that planet, and they have no problem contacting the Alliance to tell them, no, don't send in the squadron. We've got rebel forces on site. Yeah. So that, that was something that stood out to me, and I was like, was he just making that excuse because he knew he was going there to kill Galen, and he didn't want to send that message for her, or is that an inconsistency in the story? Yeah. Well, I think at the same time, it's like, uh, beforehand they're being secretive, but now he knows that there's, you know, gunships headed towards the location. It's like, well, it doesn't matter now, because if they do find, like, they've got what they need, and they should just escape, or whatever he's gonna, gonna do. But it feels like, you know, he kind of, I guess in the back of his mind, he knew that they were coming in, and there was pretty much no other way to stop him, so he's like, on the off chance that they could... Just to stop them, but they're going to be roused, you know, found any other way. I mean, because remember, they crash-landed there, and they needed a ship, so at some point, they're going to have to steal a ship, and they're going to find out. You know, it's not going to be too secretive. So I, I think going silent and then having to go loud, I, I think he more or less was a, as a tactical choice, where it's like, in either case, we need to, you know, we'll be found out. But no, I, I like those scenes, just because, again, you, you had some character development for uh, Cassian to show that, you know, yeah, he isn't a heartless monster. Uh, and he's a guy who's able to judge and, you know, for his own choices. Plus, also, he's questioning some certain choices now, since he's met yeah. uh, Jin. Uh, but also, if you notice, like, what I liked about, for the realism of the situation, is that uh, Cassian keeps changing his jacket, <laughs> if you notice. <laughs> no, like, I he had notice. his, yeah, his jacket in the beginning of it, like, his handsome flight jacket. But then he puts another, I was like, a safety vest or something on when he gets into his U-wing. Like, that blue safety thing with the yellow or orange uh, square on the corner. And then when he when he's on um, uh, Jeddah, he has that big jacket that looks like he should be wearing in Hoth. And he keeps switching between these jackets. It's just a side thing I noticed, because like, wow, he really changes jackets. It's like he lives in Melbourne, because the weather down here <laughs> always keeps changing. It's either jacket on, jacket off, jacket on, jacket off. You can't really plan your outfit. But I like that just for the fact that he's a guy who doesn't wear just one outfit. He's a guy who has different clothing to match his surrounding or whatever he needs it to be. So I thought that was interesting, just for that realism of a guy who has to be very on the go, but also change his outfit to match uh, a, a situation when it comes uh, across. But no, I, I thought those scenes, like, with this the dark and moody scene, and also uh, with Krennic bringing out the scientists. Why are the scientists old, by the way? There are no young, hip scientists. No engineers who are young. <laughs> That's what I keep finding every time you look at Galen. Uh, Galen is the handsome engineer, and then you get to see these guys are all wearing, like, plastic outfits. Yeah. 
That's something that stood out to me, too, Hamish, because after reading Catalyst, from the movies and some of the other material, you know that the Empire's all human, and they look down on other species. But in the books, there were women scientists working on this project. There were alien scientists. They were taking, like, the top minds that they could find. Mm. So the second time I watched this, and I was like, these are a bunch of old guys, like, that was a little weird to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems kind of cruel to kill a bunch of old guys. I mean, it just seems like, we've been working on this whole thing our entire lives. <laughs> it, it, it feels that kind of vibe, I guess. But then, but then again, you look at Gail and Usso, and it's like, you know, Mads Mikkelsen, and you're like, yeah, he's a handsome guy. No wonder we want to work with these guys. He's the standout star. Look at him. Him and his, <laughs> you know, nicely styled hair and his accent. It's fantastic. But no, I like in the scene where, like, you know, even though he's, he, beforehand, he's kind of lied to the Empire going, you know, I've made myself indispensable. You know, to make it look like he's helping and just, you know, fighting. I guess he, uh, he, there must have been a meeting where he's fighting for that exhaust port, where he's like, because remember in the next, uh, Death Star, that exhaust port doesn't exist. But the first one, he must be sitting there during like a meeting going, guys, we really need this exhaust port. It's going to be very important to the entire thing. And someone's going, you know, this is like a hole right into the wrong area, like the reactor, right? Like, this is bad. And it's like, no, I think it's a good <laughs> idea. I think we should keep the thing and work with it so it can exhaust air. <laughs> then another engineer going, no, 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 I've been working on this for like 30 years. This is a dumb idea. You know, this is stupid. He's like, I outrank you. It's like, well, you do, but seriously, if something fell in there and it could destroy the entire base, like, it's a very bad idea. We should get rid of it. It's like, no, I supersede you. It's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking of those meetings. We'll, we'll, we'll race shield it. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, one guy walks in. Why don't we put a race shield? Why don't you leave? Well, if we put a race shield, no, I think we should have this. I don't think this is a great idea, Galen. Well, oh, Brian, I don't care. You get out, Brian. <laughs> you don't know anything. I don't know who those other engineers are. I'm just giving them names. I mean, I'm sure they'll have fancy, great space names like Quigley Jibbo or Flippity Ham Sandwich. <laughs> but no, I, 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 again, back on track. I like how Galen, is, Galen basically, um, you know, he kind of is keeping quiet, and these scientists have no idea what this whole visit's about. And being accused that, you know, they've been traitors. And it was interesting to see, like, would he just stand there and let them all get killed off? And, but instead, he's like, whoa, whoa, hang on, it was me. You know, really take, you know, really jump in front of the gun there to, you know, protect these guys. But as we could see, it doesn't really matter. Because, yeah. again, Krennic's an uh, evil, evil man and decides to kill these old guys with these death troopers. Okay, so moving on from this scene, we're back on Yavin 4. Jin is trying to convince the Rebel Alliance that they need to now steal the Death Star plans. This is how they're going to finally stop it. Her father did, in fact, uh, lay it out in such a way that they will be able to defeat it. And, of course, there's no proof. Uh, you know, they look at her as a criminal. We see that the, uh, the Rebel Alliance is a very uneasy alliance. Uh, very few are in favor of her. They they don't seem to be able to agree on much. And so they dismiss uh, without deciding to go along with Jin's plans. But, however, a group shows up and agrees to follow through with Jin's plans. Uh, Bays and, and Chirrut seem to be up for whatever. You know, they, they got nothing to lose at this point. Uh, Cassian does join her with a group of rebels that, uh, as he says in this scene, you know, they've, they've done a lot of things in their past, you know, things that, uh, they probably are not proud of. And, you know, this is uh, a good, uh, moment of redemption for them if they can successfully complete this mission. So, uh, flying off with, you know, Bodhi Rook, this is uh, the scene that 
Paul knows I was cheering for, uh, where he uh, gives the call sign Rogue One for this impounded Imperial vessel. Because they're going rogue. Yeah. This, yeah. <laughs> this meeting was really interesting. Um, you know, the alliance was kind of fractured at this point. Some weren't quite ready to engage in open conflict with the Empire. So it's not like those meetings we're used to seeing at the end of A New Hope and Return of the Jedi. Like, there are differing opinions here. Um, this is also where we get that scene between Mon Mothma and Bail Organa discussing his old Jedi friend in the desert. Yeah. And uh, he mentions he'll reach out to him and refers to a woman that he trusts that he'll send on that mission. And we know who that would be. Yes. And he, in the meantime, is returning to Alderaan to let his people know that there will be no peace. And I don't know that that's going to end too well for him. But... <laughs> I know. During that whole point, I'm like, no, don't go, don't go. Yeah, but I like that they actually do close the book on his character to show you that, well, the stakes were even higher for um, Leia when Alderaan was destroyed because she didn't just lose all these people. She also lost her father. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's right after that conversation with Mon that he turns around and goes into another room and he says, Captain Antilles, and that is the name of the captain of Tantive for um, the Carillion Corvette that Leia was on at the beginning of A New Hope. Yeah. Nice. And, and it makes sense for the fact of two characters to be on that base who, you know, Captain Antilles were, well, owned, more or less. Mm-hmm. And who, 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 what characters could they be? We don't know yet. <laughs> Uh, we no, they show up in this scene. This is the scene yeah. where uh, they they decide we're going to head off to Scarif. We're going to re- retrieve uh, the the data tapes and uh, yeah, two very familiar droids watch Rogue One fly away. Uh, kind of upset that they weren't told of this plan. That they're never told anything. Go ahead, Paul. Who who do we see here? It was uh, BBA and and uh, Trade Federation battle droid, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Max Rebo. Yeah, Max Rebo was there. Well, everyone was there. No, C-3PO and R2-D2. And, you know, th- I was when I saw this scene, I'm like, this is how you add characters from another film in this saga. You know, they, they don't have to be like, you know, bump into each other. Oh, hello, Cassian Endor. I'm C-3PO. Oh, nice to meet you, C-3PO. I, you know, there's, there's good things ahead for you, I can tell. Like, they don't have to have some <laughs> stupid meeting. We could just have this little scene where they just see a, a ship fly away. And we got a couple of beeps from R2-D2, and that is all we need. That's great. Yeah, but at least it, it makes logical sense, because if Captain Antilles is there, that means they're there as well. Yep. Yeah. The next scene was at Ben Middleton and um, that other guy. Because remember, this is, you know, Krennic gets all upset about, you know, losing his control, so he goes to see someone who can supersede Tarkin. Yes, and... <laughs> oh, something wrong with your phone, Paul. Yeah. You okay? <laughs> No, so yes, we, we go to a volcanic planet, and when's the last time we saw this? Well, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. I, I don't recall ever seeing a volcanic planet. So. <laughs> but it's the exact same volcanic planet we saw before. Mustafar. Yeah, it, it's funny yeah. that Vader's like, yeah, this is where I was very badly burnt, and this is where I shall make my home. There wasn't a label. There wasn't a label here, but well, according to Wikipedia, it is Mustafar. Hmm. And the logical idea for it is that Darth Vader has his place there 
because it's, you know, cheap property. No, it's, <laughs> he has his place there because Emperor Palpatine, you know, wants him to be there to meditate over the fact that this is where he became, you know, he lost his, I guess, strength and his, his best friend betrayed him. And this is where he became Darth Vader. So he wanted him to stay there to feel that pain and remember that sorrow and, you know, really juice up the old Darth Vader side of himself. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, this is actually really the, the birthplace of Darth Vader. And uh, it, this is Darth Vader Sanctum that this, this place is known as. And uh, if you'll notice, it has kind of a spire. I, I believe Gareth Edwards mentioned that he wanted it to almost look like a tuning fork. It looks like it's tuning into the dark side of the Force. And it's made to parallel that Jedi Temple on Jeddah City with that spire that kind of, uh, you know, is uh, representing the light. So we get that nice parallel of those two tall structures one one representing dark side and one representing light side hmm. but also this is based off the, sorry sorry well, we keep talking you're probably gonna say the same thing is it the ralph mccreary thing yeah yeah it's because yeah. luke lucas in his original script wanted uh vader to have a castle and there was going to be hmm. like a you know a fight sequence there as well but you know continue paul yeah i had heard that as well that this vader's castle is based on original ralph mccreary sketches of vader's Sanctuary. And that's great. Just more, you know, references to the original source material. Mm-hmm. And that really helps it tie into those original movies, you know, so much more. So essentially, Krennic's gone over to Darth Vader's place to complain that, you know, his position of power has been taken away from him. And it's interesting for the scene prior to him and this conversation is that we get to see what Darth Vader's been doing beforehand. And that's basically in his back to tank, which we've seen with uh, Luke Skywalker on Hoth. In his yeah. tank after being attacked by the Wampa. But you can see it's a very important tank because it's center in the shot. It's got the two uh, is it Imperial Guards, mm-hmm. Imperial Guards. And you can see that Darth Vader actually has a servant called, I believe, Vani. Vanay? Yes. He's actually his, let's say, butler or servant, a la Batman. But yeah, I, I thought it was interesting scene just because like it, we know where Darth Vader is and we know that beyond having his suit on, it's like, you know, when he's not doing that, he's still trying to heal up from his whole experience as being Anakin Skywalker being burnt on the planet itself and it's interesting how important it is that he has the two Imperial Guards there as well watching him 24-7 assumedly but yeah I like how Krennic even though we've, we've gotten this point to see that he's a kind of a sniveling kind of weaker guy now going up to the boss who's scary is a pretty bold move it seems like he's very desperate to talk to somebody to get him back into the position of power and Darth Vader really does not care at all but on the other side, this this conversation feels exactly the same kind of conversation of when you want to talk to your boss, but he's in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can assume the conversation is he comes down, sees Vanier, and goes, I need to talk to Darth Vader. Go get him. And it's like, he's a little bit busy right now. Go go get him. And then you see the scene next, see Darth Vader wearing his helmet, but he's got nothing else on except for a towel. He's dripping. <laughs> he goes, what? What do you want? I was, I'm in the middle of something. It's better important. Like, he's just wet, just dripping. And he's like, this entire floor is now wet. I gotta clean it up. <laughs> and then Krennic's like, um, uh, the, the, you know, talking. He's kind of taken my position and he's not being fair about this. So could you have a chit chat with him? It's like, I don't care. I really don't care. I mean, I mean, you've come here. Apparently you think this is important. Not to me. Now I'm gonna go get back into my tub. All right. I could have put on the whole suit, but no. There's no time for this, buddy. I've only got one robotic arm on right now. <sighs> anyway, I'm having go. a soak. Yeah, then, then dramatically turns away, goes back towards the cloud, and you <laughs> as his feet are just rubbing against the polished surface. That's quite the director's cut yeah. you have envisioned there. Now, 
<laughs> now, I didn't have a problem with it, but I wanted to get your your opinions on uh, Vader's famous line at the end of that scene. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations. As he's force-choking Krennic. <laughs> I didn't mind it. It was maybe a touch cheesy, but I was too taken in, taken like drawn into the whole thing because they actually got the suit right. Like, it wasn't a shiny suit that he had at the end of... Uh, Revenge of the Sith, and, or he had in the sequel to A New Hope. It was like the dull coloured suit with the red lenses and stuff like that. You know, they really, really focused on keeping the suit in line with the original movie. And I like that, because yeah. it's like, wow, it's not that shiny, amazing suit. It's the first version, and the blacks are dulled, the lenses are, have that kind of red tint to it. And yeah, I mean, they, they really focus on everything. But it was interesting now that we know where Darth Vader's place is. So at the end of, I guess... Yeah, a new hope when he's just flying around in space. It's like, all right, I'm just gonna go home. <laughs> That's now my assumption is that he just goes back home. He's like, well, I'm gonna take this thing and go home now. Well, you have to read Vader down. You have to read that whole thing to see what happens right after that scene. Yeah. No, but that, yeah, that line was great. No, I I, I enjoyed that definitely. And uh, Men- you know, it was all on Mendelssohn there how he was going to act his acting job because you got to pretend like you're being choked by nothing. And uh, no, he did did a very good job. So Rogue One arrives at Scarif, and uh, here we get that structure that we saw in the trailer, and we weren't sure what it was. It certainly wasn't the Death Star. It looked too flat and round uh, to, for it to be that, the surface. And uh, we see that it's a shield gate, that Scarif is entirely covered by this force field. And uh, it's open just around this shield gate. I thought that was pretty clever. I, I like the, the look of this. So they are able to uh, convince their way through, because they are in an impounded Imperial vessel, but uh, I guess it wasn't logged as overdue, so they, they didn't suspect anything wrong, and they let them pass. So they all kind of are excited. And once they land on that surface of Scarif, uh, we find that Krennic also happens to be there to find out what messages Galen has sent. Uh, we weren't really sure what Scarif was used for, and evidently it's this big data bank that's there. Um, this is where they can transmit signals and things are stored, and uh, evidently uh, he's going to go and try to find out uh, what text messages Galen has been sending. So we see that large tower that we were looking at on Scarif. We weren't sure what that was. It had a satellite dish on top. It is the Citadel Tower Data Vault. And that, that satellite is for big data transmission. And so basically, uh, Jin, Cassian, and K2SO infiltrate that Citadel Tower, while Chirrut Imwe, Baze Malbus, Bodhi Rook, and the rest of those rebels fight on the ground. And uh, so we get a lot of uh, battle scenes here on the beach, and uh, that intercuts between uh, a great scene where uh, K2SO is kind of like keeping uh, the stormtroopers away, you know, keeping them at bay, while uh, Jin and Cassian are trying to figure out how to retrieve that particular plan. And uh, it just kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, uh, the scenes in A New Hope on the Death Star, you know, when uh, they were trying to uh, infiltrate that. And and also before that, I I forgot too, uh, we see a scene where uh, K2SO is kind of uh, interfacing with another droid, and we get a similar look to uh, R2-D2 when he was plugging into the uh, Death Star's computer. So, you know, the very similar technology as it should be. Yeah, I, I like that, that, that you actually get to see some inner workings of the robots and see how it actually uh, worked. And it has that, yeah, that same interface in the back of the skull. But it's interesting how that when they get in, they, yeah, doing the same thing as Han Solo did was knock the guys out and take their uniforms. Uh, <laughs> I, only, I only had one issue, is that the guy who was at the panel to open and close the door, 
for the base. It's like, does he not pay attention? The guy who went in there didn't have a mustache or beard at all. And, like, they didn't have mm. a robot with them. And also, where are the two other stormtroopers? <laughs> like, he, that guy is really bad at his job. It's like, it's a, it like, it's two stormtroopers, an imperial officer, and, oh, what's, what's that outfit? Squadron leader outfit, whatever it is? Mm-hmm. I forget what it is. The one that really fits Jyn Erso. They yeah. all, they, like, those four people go in, and then three people come out, well, two people and a robot come out. And that guy's like, you know, remember he waves to the guy at the control box, you know, to get him to open the door, and it's like, did you not notice that the guy was, like, he's got longer hair and a beard, and the, <laughs> you don't, you're not paying attention to this? Right. Yeah, that that's the one thing that kind of threw me off. Is like, also, you guys didn't check for those other two stormtrooper guys. It's you're the worst at your job, man. Is this your first day? It might have been. He's probably the the brother of the stormtrooper that bumps his head in the next movie. Yeah, he's They're related. <laughs> it's it's this whole story of just failure. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's my first so, day. I better get this right. You know, then realizes, <laughs> no, you're an idiot. <laughs> you have no idea what you're doing, buddy. So we get a great moment on the beach here where they, the rebels are setting off explosives and Krennic has this great overhead shot where he is and he all of a sudden sees the base being compromised all over the place, you know, and he's like, what is going on? So they're sending all kinds of uh, communications, you know, uh, find out what's going on. You got to stop this. And it is intercepted by uh, a very 70s hair looking guy at Yavin 4. <laughs> and uh, That's why he's cool. And 70s guy. Yeah, and so he runs out and tells uh, Mon Mothma and other leaders uh, about what's happening, rebel activity in Scarif, and Mon Mothma kind of smirks. Also, it's interesting to notice, in that scene, when he's running out, or when he's going to the, where is it, it's the, uh, the pilot bay, the hangar, quickly, it's a blink and miss it moment, but left the scene, bottom left, is a, a chopper from Rebels, the actual droid from the TV show. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, again, you can find these, this photo up on, uh, I think, the yeah, Twitter page for... Uh, Twitter, Facebook page for Star Wars. But yeah, the actual droid from the TV show. So he actually turns up, makes a crossover to the real world. That's great. Yeah. I love that stuff. So uh, what did you think of Mon Mothma's expression here? That it it seems to me that she was kind of happy that Jin went uh, away from the rebels and did her own thing. Yeah, it seemed like action needed to be taken. And, you know, as we saw with the Senate, they were just going to bicker and squabble and not get anything done so this is what needed to be done and she was happy someone got the ball rolling i think it's one of those things where it's like she was like i'm glad they did it because it's like oh no now we have to go and save them this is terrible guys (laughs) you know that whole feigning like oh no they did the thing they shouldn't have done that but i guess we'll have to go there now uh there's a guy was it uh, uh general merrick he plays uh, is a uh, blue squadron ex-wing leader, uh, played by uh, Ben Daniels. He's the most British-looking guy in the entire film. He's got that small yes. pencil-thin mustache. He's got that you know cut hair that looks like you know he's supposed to be from like you know, World War Two. He actually you know I'm expecting him to go. All right, boys, let's all get in our planes and get up in that big old blue and fight some jetties. He just <laughs> looks like the coolest character. Sorry, this is just a side. Every time I saw him on screen, I was like, yeah, he looks like a proper guy. He should be in the army. <laughs> I just like that because it really fit with that whole war feeling. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, I, I was sidetracked by that. I like that Mod Mothra is like going, hmm, something's actually uh, happening and we have to get in there. But I just really just like that Ben Daniels character, General Merrick, just, you know, a very spiffy looking guy. Yeah, so we learn that, yeah, they've already started heading over there. The rebels decide, well, they, they don't even meet. They're just like, oh, yeah, 
there's there's fighting going on. We're going over there. We're going to join them. And uh, so they all jump to hyperspace, like a whole fleet. And uh, they some make it through into Scarif, but the gate eventually does close, trapping the Rogue One crew on the planet and some rebel fighters as well. So Bodhi is trying to get word to the rebels to destroy the shield gate because evidently the plans can't be transmitted through that shield. So it has to be open. So this is where we get, it's kind of a video game moment, you know, where it's like, this is the mission that has to be done to get this thing, to get this thing. And so Bodhi is trying to communicate to, you know, everyone, I like that. Everybody in this crew had their one thing that they had to do Mm. to make this whole plan work. So Bodhi's thing was he had to get the transmission to the rebels that, hey, you have to destroy the shield gate. Hmm. But before that, uh, when they're looking for the plans of the Death Star, what was it labeled as? Ah, yes, of course. It was labeled Stardust. as Stardust. So it comes yes. back around to be a very touching moment for Jyn So, But also she went through a lot of other names that she was looking for the list, like Black Saber. Yeah. Which is a reference again to uh, the Clone Wars series. But yeah, it's it, in this situation where we start seeing... Uh, a certain tonal change, I'd say, where, especially when it starts off with K2SO locking the door to the, the filing towers. The vending machine room. The, 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 the eight-track dispensing machines. <laughs> that's, that's a side thing, like, when they pulled the plans, I was like, that looks like an eight-track. Like, what the heck? That's true. That's good, though. That's good. That's uh, more 70s imagery. But all I could think of during this scene is I uh, two things. Coke vending machines. <laughs> and also, when I would play those crane machine games to, to yeah. try to win stuffed animals. That's yeah. all I could think of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, he's just sitting there going, oh, man, I got to jiggle it a little bit. But no, it, like we start seeing things start to be, yeah, you know, the, the, a certain tone change, especially with K2SO locking the door. We're like, oh. Like, because in the back of your head, remember, you don't know they're going to get killed. I mean, maybe in some way you do, but yeah. You, you really, to most of us, you don't. K2S are locking the door and then starting to, you know, fight off the Imperial soldiers, you know, stormtroopers. And we're like going, like, in the back of my head, you think, oh, he's probably going to get in there as, with them or save them. But then it's like, there's only one way out and one way in and he has to lock it. And he's doing his best to survive. Yeah. And, you know, over time he gets shot in the back and then he's trying to keep, you know, keep it locked down. He's doing his best. And then, you know, unfortunately, even though they've found the plans, he has to destroy the console and also himself at the same time. Here's a real Baromir moment here, uh, like a, a Sean Bean-style death, as, mm. uh, uh, you know, dies a, a noble death trying to to save them. And this is, you know, kind of the start of it, where y- we kind of knew that this crew, we never hear of them in any of the other movies, and there's probably a very good reason, mm. and uh, this is the beginning of it. And it's like, oh, man, okay, yeah, I can see how things are going. K2SO, bye-bye. Mm. But that's it, you think, like, oh, he's just a droid. I mean, that's fine. It's sad to see him go, but... He's a droid. They wouldn't kill yeah. anybody else. And so, yeah, you start to see this kind of tone change where it's like everything's coming down to the wire where everyone has a job and it's very much a very split-second thing that they need to get everything done within a certain time because this needs to happen and this needs to happen and this needs to happen. Like, you know, Bodhi Rook needs to contact the rebels to tell them what they need to do about the shield generator uh, that's over the planet and how to destroy it. Like, they need to do that to, so the plants can be transmitted. And it's like these little bits and pieces, and the team's all separated this time. This is like the last time they saw each other was on the ship before they all left, and now they're all hmm. separated. So it's interesting to see that they all have to work together, but even though they're together, they're separate. They all have their jobs. But yeah, it's it's when they start having a sense of finality that's slowly being drawn into the scenes of each one of these characters. You can't go, okay... Where's this gonna go? Because we, we we always assume people are gonna get out of something, but yeah, as time goes by, we start noticing that like things are happening, but it's slowly starting to fall apart. Like it's it's slowly holding on. Also, just a weird side note: when they change their outfits, because 
was it Cassian's wearing the Imperial outfit and Jin's wearing her outfit. Her outfit looks like she can hide her other outfit underneath it. Where it's like she has a other jacket or vest thing. Again, this is just mm-hmm. a clothing thing again. It's like, how is she hiding like another pair of boots underneath that? Because it matches her entire outfit from before. It's like, what? That's going to be very hot. <laughs> and I think Cassian was the only one who looked like he... Well, maybe the same. I think the pants maybe the same. I don't know. But I was just <laughs> looking at how they kept on changing their outfits and going, where'd they no, hide yeah. these extra things that they wear? No, I like that the, the things were starting to get to a critical point. I mean, it does. it did take a while, a lot of lead up to this point, a lot of world building and character building to get to this point but yeah the the, the third act is a, a fantastic act so yes. you know the characters start climbing the tower and you know Ben Mendelsohn's character uh, is able to get through that door within the information tower and get a shot off on uh, Cassian and it's assumed it looks like he's dead from that point yeah. onwards and leaves Jin by herself to get to the top of the tower yeah, so as as she does that, we see we cut back to Bodhi. He's trying to get that transmission, and of course they, they keep talking about the master switch, the master switch, and it's of course on a console way out there in the middle of crossfire, and no one can get out there. One guy tries for it and it immediately gets blasted. So this was a Chirrut Imwe's uh, great heroic moment where he he chants about you know I am one with the force, the force is with me, and uh, he just uh, walks out there and is able to uh, walk through blaster fire. And he's able to uh, engage the master switch. And so, you know, his part of the mission is complete. And unfortunately, he meets, uh, you know, his end here. Baze comes out to, to try to fend off stormtroopers at this point, but it, it's too late. And, and Chirrut, uh, you know, convinces him that he is one with the Force. And, you know, that's that's where he, he will be in the ether with the wills, with the Force at that point. And, you know, Baze chants back to him, you know, that, that, that chant and... He too meets an untimely end in this scene, so very sad. And and it's funny because uh, I didn't mention it in any of our trailer episodes because it was a potential spoiler. But uh, Zhang Wen accidentally mentioned at one of their uh, Star Wars events, like, "Oh yeah, you know when when uh, Chariot Imwe dies," and they were like, "No, no, no, don't you know, don't mention anything like that." So I, I wasn't sure if this was going to be a, a, a big spoiler, but of course. Um, Everybody pretty much dies in this, so it, it didn't really matter that much. Mm. But but it's interesting to see that his character is taking on uh, a bunch of death troopers. Which, you know, as you can see, they're, they're better shots than typical uh, stormtroopers. Before Baze dies, Bodhi dies. Yep, that's true. He gets right. uh, yeah. taken down with a grenade. He finally is able to communicate with the uh, Mon Calamari leader up above the planet, you know, w- along with the uh, the rebel fleet, and is able to get the word across to destroy the shield gate. And once that part of his mission is done, uh, he unfortunately dies. And before he does, he says, "You know, this was for you, Galen." So that was kind of a a nice uh, end to his character. Mm. Just a quick little thing, though. I think it kind of stinks that Bodhi Rook doesn't have a Funko Pop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> all the all the other members of the crew have one, and even a black. R2 droid, it's called C2B5, which was completely cut out of the movie. It's still a Funko Pop toy, but there's no Bodhi Rook Funko Pop. Hmm. Do you say a black, R2, uh, a black R2 droid? Is that what you said? Yeah, it's called C2B5. Oh, because he appears in um, Star Wars Battlefront uh, as Krennic's mm-hmm. special character for that game, which I'm playing if anyone's playing. Star Wars Battlefront, because there's a downloadable content for Scarif, and you can actually fight on Scarif. And yeah, he uh, comes with a, a, a droid that puts up a shield. But yeah, that's where his uh, droid appears, or that droid appears in the movie. But also, it's it's interesting to note, as the battle's raging above, there's Red and Gold Leader 
from yes, who, which are done by was it, uh, Drew Henley, I believe, and Angus McGuinness. Uh, Drew Henley playing Red Leader and Gold Leader being played by Angus McGuinness, which is great because like they got this footage because uh, Gareth Edwards was going through the archives and there was a whole bunch of Star Wars reels which they had organized. Like it was a bunch of the offcuts from um, the pilot headshots from you know the like, extra things that they could say that they didn't put into the original movie. And he was like, "Oh, what's this?" And they said, "Oh, it's Star Wars. We haven't really organized it." And so he went through it and he found these segments of uh, Red Leader and Gold Leader and decided, "Well, I could just use this and put it into the movie." And so he spliced it in, and there's that scene with Red Leader uh, being taken down and, you know, being destroyed, which is the position that Luke Skywalker takes in A New Hope. Hmm. You mean Red 5? Red 5. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny, too. But, you yeah, know, I, I thought that's, again, because it, um, it's honoring a lot of Star Wars canon, I gotta say. And so, yeah, uh, bringing those two characters back into the, the the series just for a logical progression it's like oh you guys really love star wars like to the point that you are really diving back into some star wars and just bring it out like between the uh, ralph mccreary work that they've uh, brought back into the film and actual footage from the original film it's like wow you guys this is like a huge just love letter to star wars in general yeah definitely i love this space battle one thing i want to quickly mention for some reason, every Star Wars movie other than the original trilogy, when there are shots of pilots in their fighters, there's just something off for me. It doesn't it doesn't look as real as it should. It doesn't have the same feel as the original trilogy. But I do not have that complaint with this movie. All the shots within the cockpit and of the fighters reacting to different things, I thought it was great. And something I found out listening to a webcast was that the man that directed the actors that portrayed fighter pilots in the original trilogy, his son is the one that directed the actors for this movie. Nice. Yeah, so that was really cool. All right, so now we're kind of at the end here. Jin makes it to the top of the the data tower. Uh, She is able to transmit it. Of course, she does have some antenna problems. It's like, oh man, how tense can this get? And uh, unfortunately, she is confronted by Krennic. And uh, it, just when it looks like Jin is not able to uh, get those plans up there, uh, she is saved by Cassian Andor. He lived. Yay. He's hurt, but he lived, and he takes out Krennic, and uh, the, the two of them are able to get their plans up there. They're not sure if anybody heard them, but, you know, she just kind of has hope that somebody out there heard it. And of course, we we cut to the the Mon Calamari leader, and you know they're saying, "Hey, we're you know we're getting this transmission," and you know they're working hard to to copy it. And uh, it's at this point where Tarkin orders them to fire the Death Star upon this base. You know, this base has been compromised. He just wants it all taken out. Mm. Sadly, uh, Cassian and Jin now walk to the shore, and uh, they hug and hold hands as they're kind of engulfed by the light of the explosion. And uh, you know, it's a it's a sad ending. Uh, to their characters, you know, considering you know, we've come to know them just over the, the past couple of hours watching this movie. And uh, it, it, one thing I, I appreciated, I, I was waiting for them to make, you know, the, the movie to make them kiss. Yeah. I don't know if you guys got that vibe. Yeah. And I didn't want them to. I, I felt it was it would be so unnecessary to make this a love story because mm. it just, beat by beat, it just wasn't there. And, and I'm glad it didn't end that way. They just kind of embraced. They they know they had done all that they could and they they met this noble end. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it was one of those things where you think, oh, they got a kiss, but it's like, yeah, it's better that they didn't, because uh, it, it wasn't about that. 
you know, I mean, even right. at the end of it, where Cassian tells tells her that your father would be proud, but also, you know, uh, Cassian had a change of heart and had found some redemption. But it's 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 pretty bad for Ben Mendelsohn's character because he's on top of the tower. When they fire the beam, it goes right through the top of that tower where Ben Mendelsohn's character Krennic is, and then it shoots off you know off to the distance because obviously the blast radius will destroy everything. But it's like when he's staggering around, he looks up and he sees that you know he's about to be blown away, and he gets killed by his own creation more or less. Yeah. And again, because he's Australian, every Australian dies in movies. We never live. We we <laughs> barely barely live in movies. I mean, God. I mean, even in Commando, John Matrix. Killed an Australian character. We never live. We're always the bad guys. One day we'll have ah, a- Wolverine. Wolverine. You'll last forever. Yeah, but his character's Canadian. We have no, no. Yeah, that's true. We have no Australian superheroes. Unfortunately, there are no Australian, you know, hero characters in Marvel comics. I mean, unless they're pretending to be American. Anyway, it's interesting to see that, you know, this ending where it's like wrapping up, and you know, I guess in, in some level you think, oh, they might get saved. But no, it's just like they accept this is their ending. It's it, You have to think from their perspective where it's like they don't know what's happening on other ends of the battle. So it's just like, we hope this gets to somebody and somebody receives this information. Yeah, it's just like, you know, they had their faith that this worked out. But it's interesting to see, because as soon as I... Because remember, there's like about five, ten minutes left of this movie and it's like, all the characters are gone. So it's like, where's the movie go from here? Which yeah. is Which is interesting to me because like, we have no main characters anymore, so what happens next? And we get to see what happens next. So we we see this one scene now where the plans are copied onto a, a small disc, I guess it is, and uh, it's carried by some rebel officers. Uh, but Vader shows up boarding this rebel ship. And uh, this is uh, our only look at a lightsaber. We weren't sure we were going to see one here. And uh, a very scary moment as Vader walks out of the darkness and just uh, mows through these guys down a hallway. And the the door kind of closes. There's like a crack in the door. And I'm just thinking the whole time, I'm like, throw the disc through the crack in the door. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a great scene. It's like literally the thing that we've all, like, it's a huge payoff. It's like, this is prime Darth Vader doing his job. But also, you know, again, he's been called out to do this because, like, this is the most important thing he has to stop. Like, you know, you have to have a really high alert for for him to come out of his back to tank to do this stuff. But yeah, like, the scene was just brutal where it actually is him at his full capacity of, like, you know, taking guns from uh, rebel soldiers, slicing them down, throwing them up in the roof, choking them. And just really, like, this is the guy we wanted to see. I mean, I'm glad they used it sparingly because it just wanted you to see more of it. And yeah, the door doesn't open, the guy's, like, pushing it through. But like how other guys don't seem to know what this thing is. Like, the guy's <laughs> like, you have to take this! You have to take it! You have to take it! It's like, everyone else is just trying to get off the ship because things are going really bad. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just kind of like baton relay of people trying to pass this thing on. And, you know, I liked how the door didn't open. And it's like, oh, well, I guess Darth Vader will just be on the other side. But it's like, nope, stab the guy, open the door, keep chasing the disguise. But I like how that for the scene, it's fantastic. It's exactly what you want. And it's completely focused on Darth Vader. But, like, it changes the tone of the next scene because he sees the spaceship escape with the plans. And he's standing there just looking very kind of like menacing which which makes sense for where his emotional positioning is for the next movie in a new hope because when he's on the spaceship and he's talking to leia and leia's like oh we're on a diplomatic mission to alderaan he's like no you're not i i saw you yeah. leave you guys have the plan here i was right there i was right there yeah. i saw it don't lie to me you know and that's why he kills the captain because he has no time for this because his boss is breathing down his neck to stop all this stuff from happening yeah it's great it- yeah i thought it was a fantastic scene it was so brilliantly done, just a seamless transition into the next movie, because, of course, that ship that leaves is a very famous blockade runner, and uh, that's the one that we see at the beginning of A New Hope. And it's 
It's awesome. And if, so now we get this final scene on that ship where the plans are, are delivered to Princess Leia. And uh, it's asked, you know, what they are. And, and Leia says that they were just given hope. Now, I don't know about this final scene. We see Leia from behind, you know, wearing the white uh, head covering and, and, you know, dress. She turns around to face camera and it's a CGI young Carrie Fisher. I could have done without it. Like, I think we all knew who it was. And just like Tarkin, it was a little off. Uh, what, what did you guys think of how this movie ended? Yeah, it was a little off. Uh, I think Tarkin looked a little more realistic or better than she did. But it was just, I think she just said hope. It was just that one word. Yes. And uh, it was it was okay to, to, you know, seamlessly blend the two movies together. A lot of people have said after watching this, they want to go home and watch A New Hope. I don't care either way. I, I'm all right with it. Yeah. It, it'll be cool to watch those two movies back to back now. I just wanted to mention, we spoke of this earlier, Scott. I'm pretty sure Vader's kill count in this movie exceeds the original trilogy. Because <laughs> uh, I think I think he took out Obi-Wan and six rebel pilots in A New Hope, Captain Nita and Admiral Ozzel in Empire Strikes Back, and then the Emperor in Return of the Jedi. So that's ten. And he at least killed a dozen, if not more, troopers in this. So. What about the uh, younglings from Revenge of the Sith? Uh, he wasn't Vader then. Oh, they, they, <laughs> called him, they called him Darth Vader, and he was walking up the stairs. Doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> all right, oh, we fine. don't have time for this debate. <laughs> all right. Uh, but uh, it's, it's a good side note, because the, the man playing uh, Darth Vader this time around is a, is a guy called Spencer Wilding, mm-hmm. who took over from... Um, Prowse, who originally played Darth Vader. Strangely enough, he's your Guidance of the Galaxy connection. Uh, he was in Guidance of the Galaxy as the uh, prison officer. You know, the guy oh, who had, nice. he had the headphones. Yeah, that's the same guy. You know, he stole Very cool. Star-Lord's headphones, and now he's become a Lord of the Sith. <laughs> there you go. But no, I, I, I liked I liked the payoff at the end of there, where it's basically all about Darth Vader. And, I, and the tone of the movie actually gets readjusted again for that segment there, because again, you've lost all the heroes, so... Where's the movie now? And it's now, it's kind of like a palate cleanser to show, you know, Darth Vader back in form. Mm-hmm. And it gives this kind of like uh, up in the air feeling for like, you know, you can now connect on to A New Hope. And I, I liked it. For a, yeah. for a prequel that led directly into a, a movie, yeah. I mean, they, they were bold enough to make this choice where they the movie goes right up to the wire, right up to that line. It's like, okay, cool. I accept. This yeah, is definitely. A, yeah, great film. To me, this is the fourth best Star Wars movie. I think I'm afraid every time they put out a new one, I'll just be like, yep, fourth best, fourth best, fourth best. But this is where it stands for me, fourth best. How about for you? Definitely. Yeah, it's one of those movies you can watch again because it's a standalone and like, you know, it's just, yeah, it's it's a great little war film set in space. Well, it's just such a great movie. After all this buildup, I'm glad it did pay off. You know, we were kind of worried. We heard a lot of stories about things being changed, and sometimes that can uh, spell disaster. Uh, but no, this this movie ended up just being uh, a brilliant addition uh, to the saga. All right, and that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, things we missed, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, do you guys have anything you want to plug? No, not me. <laughs> And that's up to me. Um, well, if you want to hear me talk about more rubbish or find me online, you can find me at Twitter, Silent Hamish, Instagram, Silent Hamish. I make random things and I post random stuff. Or if you want to talk at me, you can do that too. Uh, and I'm also on Facebook as, I think, Silent Hamish Art. So you can find me on the internets or in Melbourne, walking around the street. With his buddy Ben Mendelssohn. Yeah, because, you know, 
We're both from Melbourne, and it's, strangely <laughs> enough, I grew up near Heidelberg, and he went to Heidelberg uh, uh, High School. Oh, nice. All right, well, I am on Twitter. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I'm also on Vine. My name there is MC and Friends, but Vine is going away, so I'm also on Instagram. Uh, there my name is MC underscore and underscore Friends, and you can follow me there. Uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. For Android users, we are also available to stream in or download on Stitcher. You can make us a favorite on there. Uh, that would be appreciated. We could be found on TuneIn Radio as well as the Google Play Music app. So you can check us out on those platforms. If you have a Roku device, you can download the TuneIn Radio channel. You can set Hitting Play as a favorite, and you can listen to these episodes right through your TV as they are posted. Well, we have been Hamish, Paul, and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. And may the force be with you. And with you. And may the mass times acceleration be with the realists. <laughs>